and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 60. I'm Nick Dixon, joined, of course, by number 36 on the new European shit list 2023. It's Mr. Toby Young. Coming up, Adol Ray plays down jihad, as do the Met Police. A tube driver is suspended for leading a pro-Palestine chant at work. And Greta Thunberg gets in hot water over an octopus. Not literally. Plus loads more. And, of course, peak woke. Toby, we have so much to discuss this week, and a lot of it is fairly grim and about Israel. But let's just start on a more light-hearted note with this achievement of yours coming number 36 in the new European shit list. And these are the people they want to, they're the worst people in the country, essentially, who the country could do without. It's a a nightmare lineup of national embarrassments, rabid self-promoters and ranting ideologues. I'm not sure which one you you fall into there, Toby, but you're quite good at (laughs) self-promotion. What do you think? Yeah, um, (laughs) I can do a good rant too. Um, It's funny, isn't it? one of the ironies um, of this list was that number 47 on the list was Catherine Burblesing, the head teacher of Michaela Community School. And literally 24 hours after they started promoting this list on Twitter, um, the Department for Education published um, its league tables in which schools were ranked, among other things, according to the progress children make at different schools. Um, And this is a really objective measure of how good a school is. It compares children at a particular school with um, average children with the same characteristics as those children who say, how did they fare at this school compared to other schools, um, comparable children. So it's controlling for all the different characteristics that children might have. And it doesn't matter if uh, how bright they are, what kind of socioeconomic status they have, progress eight, controls for all that and actually measures how much progress children make at different schools. And um, by that metric, which I think is the fairest way to judge different schools, um, Michaela Community School was number one, top of the list. And it's in an extremely deprived part of London. Um, So, you know, this woman who should really be celebrated as a national hero um, for having created this absolutely incredible school, which I think by this measure, which is the most reliable measure, is now the best school in the country, was on the new European shit list. I mean, how stupid do they look? They do look very stupid, particularly for that one. And, and one starts to wonder if they have a bit of a problem with uh, women of colour getting above their station because Suella Bravman comes number one. And the way they describe her is as kind of overpromoted with a furtive grin and vastly overinflated CV. Suella Bradman has risen through the Tory party to become the nation's most high-profile populist. I mean, there's just a sort of hate, a kind of deranged hatred of Suella. And you notice it all the time. And I talk to these people because I know, you know, saying these people, the kind of people who agree with the new European, and they call Suella Bradman inhuman. And this is how they think. It's, you know what? The whole list really is like a list of my friends, colleagues, and podcast guests. <laughs> That's what it could be called. And then... <laughs> Number two, the entire staff of GB News get a dishonorable mention. So I'm sort of, I guess that's me, isn't it? I guess I am number two in the list. In a, in a, in a way, I've topped you in the list, Toby. Not by name, yeah, but I kind of topped you because <laughs> I'm officially staff at GB News. So, I mean, it's a disgusting attack on GB News. It calls it uh, Britain's first propaganda channel and just a load of usual nonsense about that. And there's just so many toxic, it's just a sort of toxic tabloid trash this, isn't it, really, the whole thing. And there's some dubious grammar and syntax. This I didn't get this one for Douglas Murray. On, of, high seriousness and low opinions. You can't start a sentence on, of. What, I don't even know what they're going for. 
on on mm-hmm. higher seriousness and lower opinions, Murray is perhaps the most icy and paranoid. I mean, on of, so that doesn't make any sense. Uh, there was another time they didn't close their speech marks, stuff like this. They've got a few lefties in there. They've got Roger Waters in there. They've got Russell Brand, but they don't mention the period when he agreed with them. And, you know, they've got my podcast guest, Richard Tice, Lord Frost. Can't believe he's in there. Well, I can't believe it very much, but of course, it's completely unfair. Farage only 18. I thought he would be higher. It's a strange old list, Toby. What do you think about your you, the, it was particularly nasty, uh, nasty little paragraph on, on you, wasn't it, really? Well, I didn't read it, Nick, oh. but, but thanks for telling me. Um, oh, sorry. But uh, <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, what, what struck me about this is that, you know, the way Remainers used to characterize Leavers was they're chippy, small-minded, they nurse grievances, they're resentful, they think their country's got away from them and has gone to the dogs. All of those things are now true of these kind of Ramonas, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're, they've become the caricature that they painted Leavers as being. Yes, good point. And how can you not like Miriam Cates, by the way? I mean, how is she in there? Lawrence Fox in there. I mean, that's less surprising. Let's be honest, they all hate Lawrence. Darren Grimes, Andrew Bridgen, of course. I'm just looking for the Douglas Murray one again, actually, because they one thing they do, Toby, is they call everything vile that they don't like. And so there's a lot about unpleasant opinions. That word kept coming up. It's like if you if you tackle the actual problems facing the country, that's terribly unpleasant and gauche and uncouth to them. So, for example, in liberal society, blah, 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 uh, they, they talk about how Douglas Murray wrote, in liberal Western society, it is now necessary to demonize white people. This was just one of many startlingly unpleasant opinions in a book littered with examples. And it's like, but is that wrong? I mean, haven't white people been just repeatedly demonized in the, in the culture of media just it's not that it's not even contentious is it i mean ask cheshire police who were successfully sued because they discriminated against a, a straight white man i mean is that is that not true but i've noticed this and when speaking to people of, of these opinions it's just all like you're racist you're stupid what are, what are you actually going to do about it what are you going to do about jewish people on the street who are now scared to go out what are you actually doing about the real problems are you just sitting back and calling us all racist i mean they're just so out of touch it's just they haven't gone past that just calling everyone racist face. 66% of all Brits agree with Swella Bradman that immigration is an existential threat to the West. So you're just calling two-thirds of the country racist. That's it. That's their philosophy. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of pathetic, isn't it? Um, and it reveals the sort of the, the true face lurking behind the mask of the centrist dad, doesn't it? You know, they appear to be reasonable, good-humoured sort of guy you'd like to have a pint with, a responsible father, hard-working, but actually rip that mask aside and they turn out to be full of kind of bilious rage. The anger of the centrist dad. Yeah, it's true. And I have had bites. If you do mention these topics, they do completely lose all rationality and, and become very unhinged. Swella Bravman, they say that Jacob Lee's mog should be in jail. Uh, I've heard two people say that. I'm like, I've never understood why. They just go completely unhinged about their particular boogeyman, which is usually Boris, Mog, Suella, anyone like that, you know, Farage, whoever. Sometimes they're a bit less vitriolic about Farage, weirdly. But yeah, it's very, uh, they put it, Sunak, they talk about less, but there's the Tories, you know. Anyway, anyway, it's good to get a glimpse into the uh, the enemy, isn't it? Who see us as just evil. Yeah, yeah. It's all projection, Nick. It's all projection. I'm so, we're really nice guys. Um, all right. Well, let's move on to some of our main topics then. 
So one big one was that the Met Police said no crime had been committed after these jihad chants in the street. They said the word jihad has a number of meanings, but we know the public were most commonly associated with terrorism. Oh, the silly public. Don't you realize it's just a religious book group? When someone gets on the street, as this guy did from uh, Hizbut Tahrir, which is a revolutionary Islamist party that wants to take over every Muslim-majority country with radical Islamist ideas and eventually the world. Uh, And this guy shouted, the only solution is jihad by the armies of the Muslim countries. And the Met Police is like, yeah, but guys, think about the different meanings. <laughs> there are people with arms in Egypt, in Pakistan, in Saudi Arabia, in Jordan, across the Muslim world. And right now they are boiling like we are boiling. But apparently that's uh, all about the subtlety of jihad. I mean, you can argue there's, a, there's an argument that it's not incitement. That he, that's why he said the armies in Egypt, because he said we can't do anything. He says, um, not by you and me. The only solution is jihad by the armies of the Muslim countries, not by you and me. Who are we? What training do I have? You could argue he's thrown that in to claim it's not incitement because, you know what I mean? It's the yeah, armies but, of, of the of yeah, people. I think that's it's an interesting point. Um, could you arrest someone for stirring up hatred against people on religious grounds, which is a breach of the Public Order Act, um, uh, if the people they're stirring up hatred against um, aren't in your country? if they're just in Israel. Um, But I think the rebuttal of that defence is, well, there was a terrorist attack in Britain last week, and it was completely covered up. The newspapers were forbidden to write about it. Who is it saying we're not allowed to talk about? Is it, you know, who? I don't understand all that. Yeah, I think the... don't, I don't know whether a D notice has been issued um, and whether we're expected to know about it. Um, but I, don't, I, think, I think that's probably vague enough. This is a group, by the way, Hizbut Tahrir are a group banned in Germany, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. There was a good clip from the Imam of Peace about this. It was, I think that was who it was. I was watching a clip where he was just saying, you know, you, you've taken all the people that th- these countries don't want. It's not like, uh, you know, Dubai and... Uh, Qatar and all these places are just overrun with the people. It's like, no, they they won't have these people. So Saudi Arabia won't have this group, but we but we have to have them. This is the madness of it. And and we have to pretend that there's no problem with the, the word jihad. So Adil Ray, OBE, joined in with this. He's a presenter on telly and an actor in a terrible sitcom. He said, jihad means struggle, a Muslim spiritual struggle to avoid sin and be a better human and avoid evil. And do good. Therefore, tens of thousands were performing jihad in the peaceful protest. It can also have a war context. Let's not focus on one person at a fringe protest. No, we could probably focus on the thousands of others. But so I just wrote, I know when I'm going through a spiritual struggle to avoid sin, I tend to wait for a moment of extreme political tension, then take to the streets to scream about it in front of as many people as possible. I mean, if it's this this struggle to avoid sin, why are you screaming about it in the street? Uh, Simon Evans called this not so much gaslighting as uh, as holding a manual strobe. Or I don't want to get it quote wrong, but did you see that comment, Toby? Uh, yeah, that was um, that was uh, quite surprising. Um, the police have said that um, uh, the reason they've been quite light touch, quite permissive. We even saw what video footage of the police helping a pro-Palestinian protester down from some scaffolding and handing him back his Palestinian flag, presumably after he'd clambered aboard the roof of some building to let off flares and chant jihad. Um, 
we don't know that he did that, but the police have certainly been, they've shown remarkable restraint uh, compared to, say, policing the anti-lockdown protests um, during the lockdown. Um, uh, and um, the police have said, you know, when they've come under fire for this by members of the government, in particular, Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister, but also Suella Braveman, even the prime minister. Well, if you want us to do something about this, if you want us to be tougher and arrest people chanting jihad, calling for the Arab armies of the world to rise up and 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 wipe Israel off the face of the earth, um, you're going to have to toughen up police laws. At the moment, we just don't have the power to do that. And that's actually nonsense. Um, so um, under the Terrorism Act 2000, Section 12 makes it an offence, not merely um, to, or not just to encourage people to, to, to join terrorist groups, give money to terrorist groups, uh, but it also, it's an offence under Section 12 of the Terrorism Act to support prescribed terrorist organisations like Hamas. Um, and there were certainly people who were clearly supporting prescribed terrorist organisations on, on the protest march last Saturday. Um, in addition, you know, they could, it, 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 people chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, um, clearly, um, uh, you know, an incitement to genocide. Um, you could, I think, arrest people for chanting that um, under um, the Public Order Act, under Section 5 of the Public Order Act, um, which which makes it a crime to cause people harassment, alarm or distress. And you don't need to show intent, interestingly enough. You know, people singing that could say, well, I, I wasn't intending um, uh, to encourage people to commit genocide against the Jewish people in Israel. Um, uh, I just want the Israelis and the Palestinians to live alongside each other peacefully in a Muslim state. Um, you know, parking the fact that that would never be possible. Um, uh, I, I think that you can be you can be charged with causing harassment, alarm, or distress under Section Five of the Public Order of, of, of the Public Order Act if if by being reckless. So you don't need to have done it intentionally, but if by being reckless, you know, if it's if it's reasonable to expect that you should have known your words would cause harassment, alarm, or distress, and they duly cause it, which I'm sure they did to any Jewish people watching that protest, um, then you can be you can you can be charged with it just for recklessly disregarding the likely effect of your words, even if you didn't intend them to have that effect. So the police ha have all the powers they need. The police always say when people complain that they've granted far too much latitude to racists and anti-Semites uh, uh, on, you know, Muslim demonstrations. Um, they always say, well, if you want the police to do anything about this, you're going to have to give them more powers. That's the police's excuse every time. They have the power. They're just not using the power. They're showing remarkable restraint, the kind of restraint that they don't normally show when gender critical feminists say trans women aren't women on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. And to the layman, you go, well, hang on, you can you can visit a 70 something year old woman for taking a photograph of a gender critical sticker. You can give a chat to Kelly Jean, Kelly J. Keene for for being untoward about a paedophile. And you can arrest someone for praying in their head near an abortion center. So, you know, these are kind of hate speech type things. And I, I don't know if they're the exact same laws, but why can you do all that? And perhaps the answer is simply they know they can't cope. If they with the with the with the threat from Islamic extremism, and if, if they just have to be arresting everyone, and it would just be pure chaos. 
it's easy in an anarcho tyranny culture it's that's what you do isn't it you punish the law abiding and you you leave the actual criminals yeah i mean i've got an example of someone who was um successfully prosecuted i think in leeds magistrates court um for breaching section 5 of the public order act um because he had caused a trans person um harassment alarm and distress and this was a an evangelical christian preacher um, in Leeds city centre, who was heckled by a trans woman. Um, and um, he repeatedly called him he. And um, the police asked him to stop, and he refused to stop. And um, so the police arrested him. He was charged with this offence and convicted of, the, of this offence in Leeds Magistrates Court. And um, uh, the Christian Legal Centre appealed that conviction and it was overturned on appeal in the county court. And I was an expert witness in that case. So, yeah, that's an example of someone who was successfully, at least initially, prosecuted under uh, the Public Order Act for causing someone harassment, alarm and distress. And that was for misgendering a trans woman. So why that should be a prosecutable offence under Section 5 of the Public Order Act, but not uh, supporting Hamas, chanting jihad, and from the river to the sea, is just a mystery. Yeah, a clear example. And so we just see where the regime's sympathies lie. I mean, whether it's because the elites have let in lots of people and created this problem, and now they they know they can't deal with it. Who knows? It, we all see the two tier system at play. And with the chance, I'm never sure. But I got I got in some trouble for, for saying if you have the Hamas flag or you're supporting Hamas, you know you shouldn't be in the country. People are oh Nick, don't get involved in this, and you're taking sides. No, it's it's a terror organization that wants to wipe out our entire way of life. It's not controversial. But speaking of flags, you pointed out this one guy was arrested. There was a guy in a video waving a flag, and we've been trying to ascertain whether it's the jihadi flag, which is a kind of the jihad flag, which can be used by a number of organizations, or it's the Islamic flag which also can be used by lots of people. They, 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 they all look basically the same to the, the untrained eye. They're a black flag with, with lots of white squiggles on. It's not the ISIS flag, which is a diff, definitely a different white squiggle. But he's holding off this dubious flag. And, and, they, and weirdly, next to him is someone you describe as the little gimp, which is a little white person in a hoodie. And so, probably, is it glasses? But he certainly look, looks like a it, very strange. It's a little white person in a hoodie next to him. Get it, like like they're a sort of duo. Or like, it looked to me like I like they're both singing together on the same microphone during the chorus because he's shouting out, and the little gimp, as you call him, has a, has a loudspeaker, and they're like leaning into each other. It's absolutely hilarious. But you, but this flag guy did actually get arrested. You said, yeah. So um, I suppose one thing you could say in defence of the Metropolitan Police and their failure to make many arrests at the pro-Palestinian protest is that had they actually gone in and arrested someone when there were 100,000 people milling about on this protest, um, that could have caused serious civil unrest. Um, so the police have to be sensible and exercise some restraint because they don't want to cause a riot. I think, that's, you know, I think there's, there's certainly something in that. Um, and the police have um, uh, subsequently arrested a tiny number of people. Um, who they've identified as having committed offences on the protest. And one of them is this guy who's, as we discussed earlier, they look like a kind of comedy duo, don't they? Um, it's almost like, um, you know, um, uh, uh, Kevin the Teenager and his yeah. sidekick. <laughs> 
Um, and one of them, and uh, 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 but 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 the, Kevin the taller and of the two go large on on get, the pro Palestine march exactly. And, and but the, the the taller of the two is chanting um, Allah Akbar, God's curse be upon the infidels. That's us. God's curse be upon the Jews. God's curse be upon Israel. Um, and um, I think that I think that I think he's going to be charged with stirring up hatred against people on religious or racial grounds um but uh, yeah the, the remarkable thing is that is how idiotic his sidekick looks i mean his sidekick looks he doesn't look at all muslim he looks just like a kind of the leader of the kind of durham university labor club or something you know or, or perhaps even you know leader of the labor club in his sixth form um uh, and it's actually quite difficult to tell what gender he is so he's sort of wrapped up in a hoodie but I, i'm pretty sure it's a boy um but he looks like a kind of you know a white groupie um, who's kind of taken to hanging out at the at the kind of meetings of these kind of wannabe jihadis? It's like it's like, it's like um, it is as you said, like something out of brass eye. And it's 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 it, and maybe yeah, maybe you know I, I think you know, putting my free speech hat on, you know, if these are just a couple of stupid teenagers being kind of um, immature, um, uh, uh, you know, trying to provoke in the same way that you know. Um, uh, uh, David Johansson in the New York Dolls in 1973, you know, would would carve swastikas, uh, uh, you know, would 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 wear a swastika T-shirt just to be provocative, just to get a reaction, not because you're actually spewing hate. I mean, do you think there's a there's an argument for kind of cutting cutting these kind of stupid teenagers some slack rather than actually prosecuting them, or in your case, deporting them? Uh, probably not. I mean, this. I mean. Yeah, it is like the follow-up to Four Lions. I mean, this person looks like the the non-binary head of the Marxist Association at the Students' Union. You know, it is, yeah, I don't know, though, Toby. I don't know. You'd have to take it case by case. As people pointed out to me, you're not going to be able to deport them anyway, but yeah. it is it is ludicrous. This person is the only white person there, the only non-flag-waving person. What are they doing there? It's a bit, it's, it's like, it's a bit like um, the person on the Greta post we might talk about later who had a thing saying, this Jew stands with Palestine. You're like, really? I don't know, these people. Uh, did you also see the England flag? There was two big England flag incidents. There was the one where two lads had an England flag, and it's only a 16-second clip, but the police come up and say, look, you know, if you're about to say anything racist, you know, sort of warn them about saying anything racist. Now, we don't know what they were saying before the clip. It looked to the naked eye as if they're just really, you know, persecuting them for having an England flag. And then there's that other moment where... There was a guy outside a pub with an England flag, and he's just being surrounded by just huge amounts of protesters. And it looks like it's going to kick off in a very nasty way. Maybe it didn't, because I've only just seen that clip. It doesn't seem to have led to much. But there's this thing where, and they were discussing it. I heard someone discussing it on GB News briefly last night. They were saying, well, if if you had an England flag in that melee, would you be putting would would they be putting themselves at risk? So the police have to step in. But there is a feeling that you can't actually have an England flag in England. You can have all sorts of Palestine flags and you can have all sorts of black flags with white squiggles on for various Islamic organizations, but you, you're in trouble if you have an England flag. Is that where we are now in the country, Toby? Well, yeah, I think that we encounter this um, at the Free Speech Union in our work, often at Speaker's Corner. So Hatton Tash, Muslim apostate turned Christian. Um, she... Um, she will perform these stunts at Speaker's Corner. So she'll often appear in, you know, a Charlie Hebdo cartoon on her T-shirt. She'll start tearing pages out of the Quran. Um, pretty provocative. And often the kind of Muslim 
young men at Speaker's Corner get quite riled up by this. And the police then arrest her, even though she's exercising her right to lawful free speech, um, in order to protect her for her own safety. When we write to the police and say, why she been arrested? You, know, if you should be arresting the people threatening to attack her or attacking her. And she has actually been stabbed um, at, at Speaker's Corner. Why, why are you arresting her? Um, and their, their excuse is, well, we arrest her for her own safety. If we didn't arrest her and remove her from the scene and then de-arrest her, that sometimes takes 24 hours before that happens. And she was held overnight in Charing Cross Police Station at one point and interrogated. Um, but um, th- that's their excuse. You know, we have to arrest these people um, for their own safety. That That is a shocking state of affairs in itself, isn't it? 2023 England, you have to be arrested for your own safety for holding the flag of your own country or expressing, what is she doing? Expressing Christian views at Speaker's mm-hmm. Corner. I mean, either one is completely insane. I mean, I understand the logic, but the fact that that's where we've ended up is, I mean, it's beyond insanity, isn't it? I don't know where to even begin with that. And um, on a similar topic, we had a tube driver who has now been suspended. So there was a London tube driver, I'm sure you've heard, Apparently, he was encouraging people to chant from the river to the sea, which I didn't hear. But I did hear him saying free, and then they said Palestine. And he said he couldn't get the day off. Sorry, I can't join your protest today. I couldn't get the day off work, but you have my full support. Join me in chanting. Oh, he did say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. So pretty shocking stuff. You're, at, you're, you're, on, you're on the job at work. You're on the tube. We've all heard, if we're, in, if we're Londoners, tube drivers sort of uh, digress from the script to mouth off and have a bit of a laugh and make make a joke. It's usually mm. a kind of lighthearted moment in the, the grimness of the London commute. But this was not that, Toby. This was a guy bringing his fairly extreme politics to work in a really disgusting way. Now, the question is, should he be sacked? And I might go a bit Tobian, sort of nuanced and liberal on this and say, because I'm in a job, right, where everyone's always trying to get us sacked, which is GB News, and I don't really like getting people sacked. Part of me thinks this guy could just be so ignorant. These these far left views or whatever you want to call them are so mainstream now that they're just the acceptable view, which in itself is a big problem, which I'm not condoning. But that could mean that he just doesn't even realize how contentious it is. He just thinks, yeah. oh, they're off to the march. I'm being nice. And so for what you'd have to do, because it's kind of such a weird thing, you might not have a rule about it. But what you do now is you say any political uh, discourse over the tannoy is an immediate sacking offence from now on. Might be fair, or is it? Or does he have to just be sacked because it's so egregious? Well, I think it, it does. It turn again on the question of whether someone can be guilty of doing something wrong if they uttered a phrase which they didn't intend to cause anyone harassment, alarm, or distress. And I'm sure hearing that phrase would have caused any Jews on that tube train harassment, alarm, and distress. But is he? should he be sacked because he should have known better, because it was reckless of him not to think about the effect of his words on any Jewish passengers on his train? Um, and, you know, you say, maybe he just didn't know. And, and perhaps you're right. And I think uh, if I was, you know, um, his boss, um, that's what it would turn on. I'd, I'd want to know how how good his understanding of those words are. Did he think about the fact that there would be Jewish passengers on those on that train and how they'd feel if he was taking the side of the Palestinians and 
chanting something that they at least associate with uh, genocide in the Middle East. Um, uh, maybe he could plead ignorance. I just didn't know. I had no idea. Uh, I thought it meant something completely different or I was just uttering the phrase because I'd heard the phrase and hadn't given any thought to what it meant. You know, if you could if you could make a plausible defence along those lines, then yeah, just re-educate him, don't sack him. But I think it would be difficult to make that defence. Yeah, and I don't even think the issue is just whether... Jewish people would suffer distress. Of course, they would. And many people would suffer distress being on that tube thinking, well, well I'm pro-Israel or I don't want to be here when he's he's inflaming more sort of passion while I'm on the tube and there's all these people. It's, it is dangerous. But to me, the issue is not just whether he's causing harm and distress. It, it's, it's bringing political views to work and loudly espousing them over the tannoy. I mean, that alone, you know, is, is a big problem, isn't it? I mean, that alone is probably a sacking offence. But if bringing political views to work was a was a was a sacking offence, you you wouldn't last very long at GB News, would no, you? No, but that's my job, isn't it? If you're on the if you're on the tube, I mean, if you're on the tube, should you be yeah. able to shout vote Labour? Yeah, or vote Tory? It, no, I don't think you should. I think I think that, that you know that, that anyone who works in the public sector, I think, should should have a kind of obligation to be politically neutral. Um, uh, but. Um, Obviously, maybe it wouldn't be a sacking offence to shout that. That maybe be a talking to, but this one is dangerous and much more controversial. Yeah, it came up, didn't it, when um, the nurse said that she, um, the Labour supporting nurse said she she couldn't possibly um, uh, give any first aid or something to a Tory. Oh yeah, and I think she was sacked, and um, and I did defend her on GB News, saying that you know it was rhetorical. She didn't mean it literally. Um, people say stupid things sometimes. Um, we've all been silly in the workplace. Grant us some slack, um, but uh, yeah, I, I, it, it is quite a tough one because um, uh, had I been on that tube train and heard him chanting that, and heard all you know many of the other passengers joining in, I would have been um, pretty alarmed. And I guess you know when when if there are, I mean, imagine if there are you know some Orthodox Jews um, uh, in you know full regalia sitting on ultra orthodox Jews sitting on that train um uh, and then the crowd is whipped up into a kind of state of heightened emotion singing that song um you can easily imagine one of them being attacked by um by other by you know by other by other passengers by a mob of passengers i mean that that's to me where it crosses the line no, it definitely crosses the line, and you can easily, he probably will be sat, and it's be hard to really say it, it, he shouldn't be. I'm like I say, I'm only reluctant because so many people always want me to be sat, but yeah, it's it's not good. It was very, very bad. Um, sh- should we quickly do this Hamas chief who lives in a London council house? This one came out in the Sunday Times. I don't know where else to talk about it. It's just, it's just shocking that we have a guy who in 2019 took part in an official Hamas delegation to Moscow. Who, who's living in a in a house in I think it's Barnet? He's got a hundred and twelve thousand pound discount. He has no mortgage left, and so he, he used the right to buy scheme. So, Toby, obviously the main problem is that we have Hamas people high up in Hamas just living in our country, presumably with the with the uh, kind of get out that they're on the political wing, not the military wing, which of course is so different. Uh, 
and, and but also the added insult that he's on the right to buy scheme. He's getting discounts. He's paid off his mortgage. But how is he here? Because the Home Office guidance states that anyone who incites, justifies, or glorifies terrorist violence or seeks to provoke others to terrorist acts will be denied citizenship. So what's going on? It is odd, isn't it? I mean, um, if if even expressing support for a prescribed terrorist organisation is an offence under the Terrorism Act, then presumably being um, a leading commander um, of Hamas, um, uh, one of the kind of, you know, one of the kind of, one of the leaders of the organisation, someone who, as you say, um, went on a Hamas delegation, a diplomatic mission to Russia in 2019. I mean, why isn't that illegal under the Terrorism Act? I mean, I just don't understand that. Um, uh, and how he was able to buy a council house. I mean, it's just bizarre. Um, I, I suppose that the broader question is, I mean, I think, I, I think I'm generally supportive of the kind of longstanding tradition in Britain that, um, you know, political exiles from other parts of the world um, are given a kind of safe berth um, in England. Um, and that's always, you know, made London in particular a kind of uh, 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 such a fascinating place with so many different political conversations taking place um you know you've got and that that was true during the second world war when you know the free french were based here and the polish resistance was based here um and it's been true of many um uh, middle eastern exiled political organizations including you know some fairly benign ones like the iranian opposition um so i I quite like that tradition um but um Of course, the risk is that if you house the leaders of these genocidal, barbaric, prescribed terrorist organizations, if you if you give them a safe berth and then you import, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of young Muslim men from places like Sudan and Yemen, um, then that seems like a recipe for trouble. Yeah, complete madness. And the story seems just designed on all levels to infuriate everyone. Um, thought I'd quickly get that story in. Do you want to quickly talk about the declaration and, and the vigil? Because we, we we did this October declaration. Well, you put it together, really, with Alison Pearson and I think Laura Dodsworth. Well, do you want to explain it? Yes. Yeah, so um, it was originally Laura Dodsworth's idea. Um, she got in touch with me um, at the beginning of last week and and said that she wanted to s- create um, a declaration of support for British Jews, um, uh, uh, as well as a condemnation of anti-Semitism in Britain, which, as I'm sure you know, has increased several hundredfold um, since October the 7th, um, as well as condemning what Hamas had done in Israel uh, unequivocally and urging the BBC to stop being so mealy-mouthed and describe Hamas not as militants or fighters, but as terrorists. Um, and, uh, and and did I want to help her pull together some illustrious names to sign this declaration? Um, and uh, so I immediately got on board. And I think in my case, probably in her case too, it was prompted in part by finding out how isolated and vulnerable many of my Jewish friends have felt since October 7th. And when there was that 
vigil um, uh, a week before last um, held by British Jews, um, I think just outside Downing Street. There was there, there were there was pitifully few people there, um, and you got a sense that you know they don't have anything like the support seemingly that the pro-Palestinian cause does, um, and uh, so we felt you know we wanted to do something to 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 let our Jewish friends know that they're not alone. There are many people who are on Israel's side in this conflict. Um, and uh, so we pulled together this um, all these people to sign the declaration. And we got some some pretty good people, Maureen Lippmann, Paul Frost, um, Tom Stoppard, Tim Rice, Andrew Neal. Richard Dawkins. Um, Richard Dawkins, yep. Dawkins. I was quite surprised at that one. Not surprised, yeah. but it's just amazing to see, not that it, that would be his view, but just, to, just to, to get such big names and people who aren't, it's not all obvious that these people are all on our side. I mean, Rachel Riley was on there. It's probably the only time I'll ever be on the same list as her. Andrew Neal. Did you mention him? Serene Duncan-Smith. Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yeah. And um, and we wanted to make it open-ended. So after it was published, it was published on um, uh, it was published on Monday of this week, so yesterday. We wanted to make it possible for people to sign it and show their support, um, partly Partly because we just wanted to dwarf the four thousand signatures that um, the open letter pulled together by Steve Coogan and Maxine Peake managed to garner, and I think that was partly what prompted me to want to, to, to get involved too. It was just shocking that these, you know, four thousand artists, musicians, um, actors put their names to this open letter, which couldn't even bring itself to mention the atrocities committed on October 7th. I don't think the word Hamas appeared in that open letter. It was purely a kind of invective against Israel. Um, uh, and um, uh, we wanted, we wanted, you know, ultimately to, 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 to dwarf uh, the number of people who signed that petition. And, 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 and we've succeeded beyond our wildest dreams. So it, 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 when I last checked, and it's been up for less than 48 hours, it had approaching 50,000 signatories. Um, so, yeah, I was very, very proud to be involved in that. And um, it wasn't just uh, Laura Dodsworth, as you said, it was also Alison Pearson was involved, Emma Webb, Ian Rons, who's the president of the Free Speech Union, Jan McVarish, who also works at the Free Speech Union, um, uh, Francis Hall, the barrister, a PR guy called Toby um, guys um so there were a few of us um uh, uh but it, and it was pretty hard work i mean i was you know working flat out last week to try and get as many signatures as possible um but uh, yeah it got a nice showing in the telegraph covered in the sun and the mail and it's got quite a lot of international coverage people have reached out to us from other countries saying can we translate this and start our own declarations um so yeah and and most gratifyingly of all a few of my jewish friends have reached out to me and, and said um Thank you for doing this. You know, um, uh, I'm still deeply alarmed by what's been happening in the country and all the anti-Semitism we've witnessed in the past two and a half weeks. But this does provide some small crumb of comfort. Yeah, very important. And on a lighter hearted note, the only thing about getting the, that many signatures, great idea. But the only thing is, it was harder than for me to sort of point out that I was one of the original signatories, not that kind of anyone can just sign things. It's quite an important status difference there. I was one of the proper, like famous people ones, you were, not just the punters were. signing. And that's a real key distinction. So I didn't know how to, so it made it harder for me to talk about because I was like, that's that's the main thing here, guys. 
But also, <laughs> a second a second point, this is, this is quite important, I'd like to know the crossover between this list and the new European shit list, because actually I've seen already four names, no, probably five names, you know, we've got Frost, we've got Mar, we've got you, we've got Brendan O'Neill's yeah. on both, we've got Farage on both, that's five Catherine, already. Yeah. Claire Fox, Catherine Burblesing, seven, Mir- Miriam Cates, eight. Um, so, we got uh, yeah. Um, I'm looking down the list now. Um, uh, Mary, Darren Grimes, there you go. Yeah. That's another Darren Grimes, another him. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to um, wonder, therefore, haven't you? Like, what is it that the new European, you know, Dan Hannon? There's another. It's a bit weird, isn't it? I mean, it's a bit weird that the only people that want to prepared to publicly support Jewish people are the kind of people the new European hates. I mean, that's all a bit. Are they a bit? Are they a bit enamoured, perhaps, of the German European project still? As a, I've got to ask the question, or is that <laughs> is that, is, is that libelous? Um, <laughs> it's pure satire, guys. But you know, it is interesting. Yeah, I'd like to let's run the numbers on that. Someone can tell us how. Oh, many they've got people. so so number six and five on the new European list are Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. Both of them have signed the October Declaration. They weren't amongst the original signatories, but they've signed it uh-huh. since it was published. They're just punters. But yeah, they're on there as well. Interesting. So I don't know. It's a bit weird, isn't it? What a weird time. And maybe we'll get into this. Um, unless, unless you wanted to say more about the vigil. Vigil? Vigil? Oh, yeah. Just um, I was just going to mention that um, on Sunday, um, the day before the declaration was published, um, I went along to Trafalgar Square to a vigil for the people that had been killed in Israel on October 7th and the people taken hostage and still being held hostage in um, Gaza um, by Hamas. Um, And it was actually really moving. Um, There were several thousand predominantly Jewish people. um, uh, And we heard from some of the uh, relatives of the people who'd been killed and abducted on October 7th, who'd flown in specially to talk about it. Um, uh, And um, a rabbi, someone from the British Board of Deputies, Michael Gove, a Labour MP. Um, and people were, you know, as they were being told these stories of the, by the survivors who'd flown in from Israel, people were openly weeping and they were, they were holding up placards with the faces of some of the people who'd been kidnapped um, uh, 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 and are still being held. Um, and it, yeah, it, was, it, was, it was really moving, but, but um, depressing actually how few... Uh, non-Jewish people were there. It was predominantly Jews who were there and a few absolute idiots um, kind of walking past or driving past and kind of hurling abuse, hurling abuse at people, you know, holding a vigil um, for the dead and the endangered. Uh, Pretty despicable. Yeah, incredibly disturbing where we're at. Okay, well, that's why we've got the declaration. So you can sign that. Where do they sign at one it? Point, at one point, on a lighter note, Nick, at one oh. point, this this kind of woke Gen Z, pink haired uh, woman um, uh, was walking past, and she started screaming, you know, from the river to the sea. And this very respectable looking guy who I was standing next to looked like a kind of you know a centrist dad of about. 55 um turned around and screamed at this girl get a life you stupid c word at the top of his voice <laughs> and uh, she was she was slightly shocked and did shut up that's really annoying our connection just went weird just as you screamed the uh, insult did he call her uh, the b word i didn't get to hear the, it. The, the c word 
Oh, didn't get to hear that at all. Wow, I can't believe that. Why did, why did our connection cut out at the best point of the podcast? <laughs> all right. Well, what a legend he sounds like. Where can people go to sign this declaration, Toby? So if you want to sign the declaration, um, the website is British Friends of Israel, all one word, dot org. British Friends of Israel org and um, you have to fill in this form and then you'll be sent um, a verification email so you then have to just click reply and um, then your name will be verified tick a box if you're happy for it to appear and in due course I hope we'll manage to get all the names up on this particular website um, and if you don't find the verification email at first have a look in your junk uh, inbox that's probably where it'll be okay we've got to tackle a massive topic now but i just need to step out quickly i'm gonna leave it up to you toby if you want to do an advert or not sure so this is an ad for a new sponsor the wild goose chef it may seem like we are living through a rather bleak era but don't be dispirited gather family and friends to celebrate the milestones of life birthdays christenings anniversaries even funerals any excuse is a good excuse to have a party the Wild Goose Chef specialises in intimate dinners and larger parties for up to 100 guests. If you're having a party, you need the Michelin-trained Wild Goose Chef to do the cooking. He will cheerfully take the stress out of all aspects of planning your event so you can relax and enjoy the night. London, Berkshire, Wiltshire and the Cotswolds, this guy puts himself about. If you're hosting a party, it makes Good sense to get a well-trained, experienced, and reliable chef to do all the hard work. So call the Wild Goose Chef on 0779-658-164. That's 0779-658-164. Or you can email him at joe at wildgoosechef.com. That's all one word, joe at wildgoosechef, all one word, Com. The Wild Goose Chef is a proud member of the Free Speech Union and is happy to offer a 10% discount to other Free Speech Union members. And those details of how to contact Joe at the Wild Goose Chef will be um, underneath the um, blurb about this podcast on our website, The Daily Skeptic. All right. Thanks for that. People should advertise with us. We're really smashing it with the numbers. What do people email Toby? The Daily Skeptic at gmail.com. The Daily Skeptic at gmail.com. That's right. Okay. And we're getting, you can tell from the fact we are, we're getting more ads, how, how our numbers are doing. Our, our downloads are massive. So you really do want to advertise on this podcast. All right. Well, let's move on and do this quite complex topic, which I wanted to prepare for, which is a kind of woke versus Israel, I'm calling it, because it's sort of multiple topics together. We could start with. Well, there was the ITV woman who uh, they interviewed, this poor woman who was talking about her victimhood as a Muslim, who then turned out to be a fairly militant Hamas supporter with a, a, a YouTube or streaming show on these kind of topics. And that was an embarrassment for ITV. No one seemed to call for them to be shut down. I'm not sure where it fit in the delicate broadcast ecology that Adam Bolton spoke of. But if it was GB News, I hate to make this kind of constant, imagine if it happened the other way around comparison, because it has become a cliche. And Obviously, we need to do things, not just complain. But if it did happen with GB News, we'd be in all kinds of trouble. Absolutely appalling. We've seen the BBC, their uh, accepting of Hamas propaganda with the hospital. We saw an interview the other day with um, Natasha Hausdorff, who was a very impressive lawyer who just schooled the BBC and kind of exposed their bias. We saw 
Victoria Derbyshire with the former Israeli Prime Minister who just tore her a new one, as they say. Probably a bit, probably a bit gross in that context, but, but he, that's what he did. He just said, you know, we know the BBC's bias. We, we, we all see what you're doing. And, and she's like, no, that's not true at all. But we all see it, BBC. You, you can't really hide it, I'm afraid. ITV the same, Channel 4 the same, Sky the same to an extent. And it's got to the point where the... Israelis have had to re- re- release this video footage that proves the d- depravity of Hamas terrorists. The Daily Mail covered it on their front page today. And it's they've had to show journalists a 45-minute long compilation of unedited footage. And it's so shocking. Honestly, just reading the details last night for headliners made me feel nauseous. And, and it was very hot in the room. But it was just incredibly, it's so sick and disturbing, the things that have happened. And they've had to do this to actually try and quell this sort of, oh, it's not really that bad, and oh, what about Palestine? And this this downplaying of the Hamas atrocities. Well, let's start with that, Toby. What do you think to all that that I've mentioned? I know it has been um, shocking um, to see the double standards of the news media, not just our news media, but the international news media, including some of the most prestigious legacy brands in the world, like the Washington Post, the New York Times. Um, to see the double standards, you know, if 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 Israel claims that um, Hamas terrorists um, raped, tortured, murdered, beheaded, you know, over twelve hundred um, uh, people in Israel on October the seventh, every journalists say, well, why should we take your word for it? Prove it people start saying they're probably exaggerating or did they really behead the babies? We talked about that last week. Uh, was it really, okay, maybe they beheaded some, but did they really behead 50? Um, you know, there's this kind of constant skepticism, you know, that, that, that there's kind of, uh, they, they turn into kind of, um, you know, um, forensic investigative reporters, you know, they have incredibly, incredibly high threshold that needs to be satisfied before they'll report anything told them by the Israeli authorities. But when an explosion takes place at a hospital in Gaza, the um, uh, Ministry of Health in Gaza only has to issue a statement saying, hospital destroyed in Israeli airstrike, 500 innocent women and children killed. And that is immediately regurgitated by every major mainstream media platform. Um, So, well... Even though, um, you know, the um, Ministry of Health in Gaza is part of the Hamas government, you know, the very same people who two weeks ago um, uh, embarked on a pogrom um, on the Israeli-Gaza border. Um, So why take their word for it, but distrust everything you're told by the Israelis? And the poor Israelis, you know, were reduced to having to show the webcam footage that they'd recovered from these multiple crime scenes to actually prove to the international news media that they weren't making it up, they weren't exaggerating. These things really happened. Um, Whereas actually um, all the um, intelligence analysis that has followed the initial reporting of the explosion at the hospital in Gaza indicates pretty conclusively that um, first of all, the hospital wasn't raised to the ground. There was an explosion in the hospital car park. Secondly, 
we certainly don't know that 500 people were killed. Um, uh, it was probably a much lower number. And thirdly, the cause of the explosion was a misfiring rocket uh, launched by Islamic Jihad, a terrorist group allied to Hamas from within Gaza. So the story was wrong in every particular. And it isn't just, you know, our own intelligence analysts saying that, working for the British security services. You know, if you look on Twitter, there are all these intelligence think tanks, former intelligence analysts, all saying the same thing and presenting, you know, forensic evidence that in all likelihood the explosion was caused by a rocket fired by Islamic Jihad from within Gaza. Um, and yet, you know, the, 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 the thing which really which is which is really annoying about this is that the BBC is part of something called the Trusted News Initiative. I've written about this in The Spectator this week. The Trusted News Initiative is a consortium led by the BBC, uh, started in 2019, and it includes the most powerful uh, uh, media and technology companies in the world. So uh, it includes the Washington Post, it includes Reuters, Associated Press, New York Times. Um, uh, it includes Microsoft, Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, um, uh, Twitter. Um, and um, the Trusted News Initiative was started to combat misinformation and disinformation on the internet being promoted by these unreliable, untrustworthy, unlike these legacy media brands, untrustworthy alt-media sites. Um, and uh, there's actually a lawsuit, uh, 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 an antitrust suit uh, that the Trusted News Initiative is currently embroiled in in America, in which they're being sued by various publishers of independent news websites um, for smearing them, for using their for, for using companies like Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter to suppress some of their stories and try and put them out of business, um, whether by shadow banning, manipulating search results, etc. Um, and uh, you know. These these legacy media companies say, "Oh, we're, we're not we're not attacking these these alt media news publishing sites because you know um, uh, so many of our readers are deserting us for them. We're not doing it for cynical commercial reasons. No, we're doing it because we care about trust in the public square. We want to protect the integrity of democracy, the integrity of our elections. We want to combat misinformation and disinformation about public health so people don't die because they're taking bleach to try and cure themselves of coronavirus. Uh, we, we want people to realise what the risks are of climate change. So we're, we're trying to suppress these, these climate contrarians, these climate change deniers. It's also high-minded, all done for the public good. Um, uh, and, and yet it turns out by far the worst purveyors of dangerous disinformation, genuinely harmful disinformation, are the BBC, the Washington Post, the New York Times, um, ITV, um, uh, all of whom regurgitated what was obviously anti-Israeli Hamas propaganda. And it had really harmful consequences. It caused rioting in cities across the Middle East. Uh, massive protests outside British and American embassies, a huge spike in anti-Semitic incidents in the UK, an attack on a synagogue in Berlin. But most importantly of all, it meant that the peace conference, the summit organized by Jordan of various Arab leaders, which Biden was flying to attend, was cancelled at the last minute in the immediate aftermath of the reporting of this particular explosion. Um, you know, 
that was a that was a chance to de-escalate this conflict before it rages out of control. Um, and that's that that chance has now been squandered because of the disinformation trafficked in by these mainstream legacy media companies. You know, shut up about companies like the Daily Skeptic and Mercola, um, uh, you know, and Trial Site and Epoch News trafficking in misinformation and disinformation. Nothing they've ever said. They get things wrong. Of course they do. But nothing nothing they've ever said has been in the same ballpark as as harmful as this particular bit of disinformation. It's really shocking. If I was, you know, if, if, if I was running the BBC's Trusted News Initiative, I think I'd shut up shop at this point and just kind of throw my hands up and say, okay, we've got this one wrong. Um, it's us that are responsible for promoting disinformation, not the other guys. I mean, talk about trying to restore trust in the mainstream media. It couldn't have taken a more colossal blow to its reputation than its reporting of that tragedy in the past week. Absolutely. And a sort of comic example of this was there was an inevitable picture of Mariana Spring for some reason. She's just always there, isn't she? Of BBC Verify. And it's from BBC News UK. And it says, Israel Gaza war, how to spot disinformation on social media. And then as a community note been added to it, the BBC itself recently had to apologize for airing misinformation over a pro-Palestinian protest. I mean, this is where we are. You almost don't expect it at the BBC, do you? It's like you almost, we're sort of used to having a bit of a pop at the BBC, but you almost think, really? You really, oh, you're actually worse than we thought. You know what I mean? That, that's been my takeaway. It's like, oh, you really are like this. You really are destroying your reputation. And you mentioned the, probably before we went on air, the Hamas thing where, you know, we talked about it before, they wouldn't call Hamas a terrorist organization. And then that's part of what made you realize we need this, uh, this October declaration support of, of Jewish people. But then they came out with that very pathetic, sort of um, pedantic, kind of passive-aggressive version where they said, okay, they're a prescribed, organi- a prescribed terror organization according to the government and some others. What was it? I can't remember the exact wording of it, but it was something very mealy-mouthed and kind of like, okay, some like the government say they are a prescribed terror organization. Have you, you've seen that, presumably? I didn't see that, but um, okay, can there be any doubt that there are terrorist organization after what they did on October the 7th. I mean, as you say, it's um, it's it's so upsetting just to read about it. And I couldn't sleep last night after reading some of the reports of what the IDF had shown to the international news media from the body cams. I mean, there was, I mean, I don't even want to repeat them, but the stories were just so horrifying, so heartrending. Um, yeah, the it was, it was just the most, they were about as barbaric and evil as it's possible for a human being to be. I mean, you know, um, they make the IRA look like uh, ABBA. I mean, it's just... Yeah, it's horrific. And just to get the exact wording on that, it was, um, it's the, it's prescribed as a terror organization by the UK government and others. So what a strange, strange climb down that is. It's not really, is it? Prescribed as a terror organization by the UK government and others. Oh, some weirdos prescribe them as a, like the government prescribe them as a terror organization. It's like, why can't you call them terrorists? So, so weird that that's what they've come out with. And they think this is balance and they think this is impartiality, but they're just so wrong because they're part of the, that equivocation, that, that moral equivalence that isn't there. It's like, you know, you just have to condemn Hamas as terrorists. And that doesn't mean you hate all Palestinians, but that's the kind of their take on balance. But whenever they have anyone actually on, who actually has a real sense of balance, they always get exposed. 
because they're not giving full context. It's basically their idea of context, the media. It seems like the BBC, Sky, when I've been watching these clips, their idea of context and balance is, yes, Hamas did some bad stuff, but they're occupied, you know, Palestine's occupied. That's not really balance, is it? Balance would be, you know, why is why has a two-state solution not been able to be reached? Who's been the one that has not come to the table on that? What are Israel's historical claims to the region? A, if you wanted to really go into balance, you could go into what is the real historical situation, but that's not what they mean. They just mean, Hamas did some bad stuff, yeah, they killed some, raped some people and killed some babies, but it's like, that's not really balanced, is it? It's pretty also, sick. The BBC's not shy to take sides on some some issues. You know, they, they think that, you know, it's not appropriate to have a balanced discussion of some issues, among which they include climate change. You know, yeah. the BBC took a, an editorial decision in, I think, 2017, not to have people on the other side of the climate change debate. They decided that was just settled now. Um, so they were just going to just just energetically promote one side of that argument. So how can that be a settled issue, no longer requiring the BBC to treat in a balanced way? But not the issue of um, when a when a group of you know genocidal maniacs cross a border and start chopping their heads off babies, you know that that's 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 something they've got to treat in a balanced way. It's just ludicrous. Yeah, and I've even heard discussion about you know oh should we have had so many Brexit people on like Nigel Farage? Like most you know normal people think they were massively biased to remain, but there's even worry at the BBC should we even be representing that? They even there's even you know many people think they shouldn't even be representing a Toby Young or, you know, type of view. It, it, they, they're not even sure that should be in the spectrum of, of BBC opinion, but this should be. It really, really crazy and disturbing. Um, and this just taps into this whole question of what I'm calling woke versus Israel. So here, my little take on this is in the immediate aftermath of this horrific attack, the woke mask came off and the decolonization mask came off and we saw what it really meant. We had all these people saying, what did you think decolonization means? This is what it means. And we had people like Rivka Brown saying it was a day to celebrate, Navarra Media person. And we had the Ivy League universities all defending. We had the 36, I think, organizations associated with Harvard writing a sort of open letter that seemed to defend it. And we, we just had all this appalling stuff. And we go, okay, this is what decolonization means. This is what woke means. Will people now see it? And will woke have to be... Put away as as uh, one YouTuber put, puts it, it kind of called academic agent. Will will they have to put the woke away, or will it go the other way? Because then it then it started to seem that with some of the perhaps more reckless rhetoric of neocons and with the general the things we've discussed, the bias of, of the BBC and the bias of all these other media organisations and the open letters of the actors and the the lobbies and all this, you start to go oh. It's, and, and the tube driver feeling emboldened to shout free Palestine, you start to go, oh, Israel has, pr- pr- being anti-Israel is the high status opinion and, it, and pro-Israel has fallen on the wrong side of the culture war binary. So it's a little bit confusing though, because obviously people like Sunak support Israel and even Starmer has to be seen to support it because of his problem with anti-Semitism in the party. Otherwise, you imagine the Labour Party would jump on board with Palestine as well in, in an in unambiguous way. But what do you think, Toby? Because it, basically, here's my my thesis: is oh, it looked like we were going to woke was going to take a real blow here, but then there was this kind of realignment of like you've got the what Matt Goodwin might call the new elite seem to be backing this kind of decolonization pro-Palestine radical view. 
with the with, yeah. the, with some exceptions. It's, it's all a bit. It's hard to know who's going to sort of win the culture war battle. Yeah, but I think um, one of the points that Matt Goodwin makes in his book, um, The New Elite, is that um, there isn't much now. There isn't much difference between the opinions of um, radical, progressive, woke students and members of the British elite. Um, they're pretty much all singing from the same hymn sheet. They're all members of the same woke church. And we've seen that um, uh, in the past two and a half weeks, um, that radical, progressive orthodoxy um, uh, demonizes Israel. You know, Israel is a colonial power. Um, uh, Jews um, uh, enjoy white privilege. Um, and um, they're, 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 the victims here are not the Jews, um, uh, who are the colonizers, but the Palestinians who've been displaced. Um, and that's so, so it's sort of within the kind of woke church, the Palestinians are martyrs and the Israelis are the oppressors. Um, and um, one of the reasons I think the woke have been so uh, hesitant about condemning Hamas and in some cases openly celebrated um, what Hamas did. And, and, and probably the most um, appalling example of this, uh, Nick, is a poll that's that, that, that first appeared on Twitter um, at around midnight last night. I don't know its provenance, but um, the question asked, it was in, in America, and the question asked, do you think the Hamas killing of 1,200 Israeli civ civilians uh, uh, in Israel can be justified by the grievances of Palestinians or it is not justified? And a majority of 18 to 24-year-olds, so probably the wokest of the different demographics, a majority of 18 to 24-year-olds thought it was justified. So 51% thought it was justified, 49% thought it wasn't justified. Amongst people aged 65 and over, I think we can assume they're the least woke, only 9% thought that what Hamas did was justified, with 91% not justified. And I went to um, Lionel Shriver's um, Roger Scruton Memorial Lecture last night, and she was talking about the difference between the radical progressivism of the 1960s um, and the radical progressivism of today's woke generation. And she said the difference is that in the 1960s, underpinning this critique of patriarchy, the military industrial complex, the war in Vietnam, there was a kind of utopian vision of um, uh, a, a better society. You know, of course, it was kind of completely unrealistic and they thought appalling things could be done in the name of this kind of utopianism. But underpinning even Stalinists, even, even people who were Maoists, there was this vision of a kind of city on the hill, a, 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 a utopian future to justify, you know, all these terrible acts of barbarism. The difference is that with today's radical progressives, there's no positive vision. There's no utopianism underpinning it. It's all negative. 
It's all just celebrating destruction. They just want to pull everything down. They never talk about what they're going to put in its place. It's underpinned. The engine driving it is this kind of nihilistic self-hatred amongst kind of white Western elites. Um, and and that's partly why you know the way woke culture manifests itself is in such negative ways. It's all about cancelling people, about destroying your enemies, about pulling them down. It's animated by kind of a sense of grievance and resentment, a hatred of the success of the West and of white men in particular. Um, and there's no pretense almost that, 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 that it's about anything else. It's just about wanting to inflict pain and suffering on your ideological enemies, nothing else. Um, and um, maybe the reason they've been either indifferent to um, uh, what Hamas did on October 7th or have openly celebrated it is because that is the natural, logical extension of cancel culture, you know, they've met, they, they, they enjoy destroying people's livelihoods, destroying their reputations, ruining their social lives. But actually, you know, they also, given half a chance, would enjoy literally torturing and murdering their enemies too. That 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 I think explains why it's the kind of nihilistic kind of void at the heart of woke ideology. You can see why. Um, uh, that that inevitably leads to uh, this kind of slaughter, this murder of people they regard as the oppressors, as colonialists, as white supremacists. Um, uh, so, I thought when I was listening to um, Lionel talk about this yesterday, I suddenly understood, I think, for the first time, um, why the woke have such a kind of blind spot about what's happened in Israel and why they're so willing to forgive or at least sweep under the carpet these appalling atrocities. Yeah, uh, that, that puts it very well. It's, yeah, it's a nihilistic siding with the so-called oppressed in every instance and a justification, a justifying of whatever they do to no particular end, as you say. That sounds about right to me. And there was this pie chart and it was extrapolated from the figures we've mentioned. Now, I think it did come from Telegram, so we have to be a little bit suspicious, but it had the 51%, which does seem to be verified of of, uh, of of whether Hamas can be justified, Hamas's actions can be justified by the grievance of Palestinians. 51% of 18 to 24-year-olds said yes. But then there was another graph next to it. Do you think the attacks on Jews were genocidal in nature? 62% of 18 to 24-year-olds said yes. So if you put those two together, you say, oh, they think genocide is justified. So in a we need to check maybe that, that graph. But but the first stat certainly comes from The Hill and many other places reported that. So, yeah, they seem to think it's justified, which is incredibly disturbing. And there was another disturbing trend on the same lines of um, what you were suggesting we call bigoted babes, which um, were basically these seemingly quite attractive women saying horrific things and getting sacked for it. And I actually suggested the name Hotties for Hitler, but that would probably get us in too much trouble. So you said we shouldn't say that. But the point is, it's a satire against them because I'll give you an example. So there was this Nazima Hussein over, I don't know how to pronounce that, but, and she was working at Citibank and there's all these sort of attractive pictures of her, but she had posted, no wonder Hitler wanted to get rid of them with a smiling face, meaning Jewish people. And so she was sacked from Citibank. So what is going on? And then you, there was another example of uh, someone called Courtney Carey, who was working at Wix.com but posted Israel is a terrorist state, but Wix is an Israeli company. 
So the next day, she suddenly wasn't working for Wix.com. It had been taken out of her bio. Another sort of attractive woman on LinkedIn, hating Israel, hating Jewish people. You go, what on earth is going on? And then another one, Sarah Chowdhury, a lawyer who worked in the Illinois Comptroller's Office and was president of the South Asian Bar Association of Chicago, has been removed from both positions after expressing extreme anti-Semitic views in support of Palestine. And she had had some awful stuff in her in messages saying like effing Jew and Hitler should have eradicated all of you. And that's why I make the Hitler joke. Yes, it's a dark joke. But the point is, these people are, that's what they're saying. They're pro-Hitler. And they're, and they're in sort of high positions or normal corporate positions. And they're getting sacked. It, it, obviously, but it's it's unbelievable. So, and why is it significant? Now, maybe their photos are just good, and they're you know why is that? Why are their looks significant? I'm going to get in all sorts of trouble with this. Well, the reason is because these are sort of like it's like normal people in fairly high status jobs. They're not kind of like the outcasts of society or wretches. They're kind of like they, you know there's the sort of normal women, and uh, but they they support genocide. It's kind of it's absolutely insane. What's going on, Toby? Is this part of this? strange phenomenon where, whereby it's become high status and normal to be anti-Israel. Yeah, I think that is that is what's at the bottom of it. I think um, one thing I noticed um, when I lived in New York in the 1990s, which was a very different era, very materialistic, um, is that um, one of the roles of attractive young women was to only make themselves available to people with the correct opinions, people who exemplified the values of that particular society, and in that way, reinforced those values um, and became enforcers of conformity, of orthodoxy. And I think that's what's going on here. These women have intuited that um, these particular opinions are within their peer group, uh, amongst their generation, high status opinions, and um, they want to enforce that orthodoxy, preserve that hierarchy of, of values um, by advertising their allegiance, signaling how much they share these particular views. I think I think that's what it's about. Yeah, and they've obviously gone overboard and got it wrong. But I mean, I don't know, there might be some ideological, there must be some ideological hatred in there when you're saying, you know, Hitler should have eradicated them. Maybe someone casually saying, oh, pro-free Palestine is like, perhaps like them posting the black square for Black Lives Matter. But when you're really like praising Hitler, it does suggest maybe they they are more in, de- actually into the ideology. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah the, maybe. Um, may, maybe they maybe they they want to enforce ideological orthodoxy, but they've they're, they're sort of slightly dumb about the way they're going about it. So they've 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 kind of crossed a line without realizing they were crossing a line. I mean, I, I did read the exchange between the um, controller in the Illinois legal office. Um, and it was a kind of series of text messages um, with um, a guy who seemed to be trying to provoke her, a Jewish guy. And she said these absolutely appalling things, but it it could have been, it's just conceivable. It could have been kind of private dirty talk between two lovers or between two people trying to kind of provoke each other. I thought maybe that, maybe in her case, you could make that excuse for her, that it was just deliberately over the top in a private sexually charged chat in which this guy had actually asked her, you see him earlier in the chat, asking her to insult him. And then she says these absolutely terrible things. Oh, wow. That's just what he's into. 
and she's providing it. Is that what you're what you're saying? She's- well, that, that could be a conceivable defence in her case. I thought when I read the exchange of messages. Well, I look forward to you being the the witness, Toby. <laughs> in that case, wow. That's uh, I need to read these messages again. This is the third case I mentioned. Oh, I see. Yeah, I see. There's a no. Isn't it just no? I didn't take it that way at all. I took it as she starts saying, "All you Zionists will pay," and he says, "Talk dirty to me," but it, he's just sort of dealing with some spam there, you know, in a way of kind of like joking, like bringing it on. But then she she goes on and says more and more, and he's he he's doing the "Oh, you just want to bleep me" defense. He's doing the Elon Musk just wants to date me defense that AOC used. I'm taking it that she's writing horrible things. He's kind of absorbing it and making light of it by saying it's dirty talk, and she's just doubling down, saying horrible things. That's what I took it, not at all what you're saying. You see what no, I mean? You don't, you don't think there's different. a universe in which they knew each other, they've had sex, um, and they often kind of um, no. talk in this way to each other um, as part of their kind of private sex talk. No, because look at this. Vermin should have all been killed decades ago. All you Zionists will pay. Talk dirty to me. He's just saying, you can't harm me with these words. I think you're, okay, you know, maybe you're right. It's my thesis is definitely maybe correct. I'm giving a more far too much benefit of the far doubt. Far too much yeah. benefit. Of the doubt. You've done that before, Toby, <laughs> with your nuance. Uh, might have to <laughs> take all that bit out of the podcast, but we'll, we'll let. Um, I don't know. It gets very nasty, doesn't it? It's this stuff is horrific. Um, and there was one other thing I wanted to mention, which was Coke uh, dropped all mention of BLM from their website. So this goes the other way. This goes the way that okay, is woke are woke corporations waking up to this and going, oh, we can't be advocating this stuff. So they deleted this mention of BLM from their website following, you know, the horrific parachute image that BLM was sharing, the, the, basically supporting Hamas immediately after the attacks. And now Coca-Cola completely dropped a sentence that involved Black Lives Matter. Uh, Ted Cruz highlighted it on his, on his ex account. They just completely deleted it. So then you go, okay, so maybe the woke corporations either are going to have to move away from this or at least become more clandestine about it. I don't know which way it's going to go, which might mitigate against the previous point. Yeah, yeah. You can imagine, I mean, you know, we've we've talked about peak woke before. Have we reached peak woke? Um, And I now regret ever claiming we had because nothing could have, you know, this is far worse than I could have possibly imagined, uh, particularly if that, you know, that, 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 that pie chart is, is, is real. Um, uh, but let's hope this is the peak. Um, and you can imagine that certainly in corporate America, um, there's now going to be a certain retreat from woke ideology, given that they've seen how clearly linked it is with anti-Semitism. Um, one would hope, um, but I, I can see that happening now. Uh, I think, uh, and you can see, you can see, kind of um, universities maybe thinking they've got to put their houses in order when they've seen how many students, uh, how many of these student societies uh, are endorsing terrorism. Um, they must, you know, people, people in the past have often said about wokeism. Um, it's just students doing studenty things. We were all a bit radical and silly when we were at university when they become adults they grow up and they put these things beside behind them you know um uh, people you know making excuses and just thinking it's the way of the world it was ever thus um but i think those people um uh are waking up 
um, and realizing that this isn't just common or garden student radicalism. This is a genuinely toxic ideology that excuses, you know, beheading babies because they're Jewish. Um, and, you know, that, that, that's, that's a, a different order uh, of ideology, not something that universities, I don't think, would want to cultivate. Um, it's just, it's, uh, so, so hopefully it will be a wake-up call and um, we're finally witnessing peak work. But mm. having said that before and got it wrong, I'm no longer as confident as I was. No, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure we ever reach peak woke. It's just an ongoing war, isn't it? We don't seem to be able to get rid of it no matter what. And uh, this, it looked like it for a second, as I said, and then it kind of swung back the other way. With the body cam footage being released, maybe it swings back again. I don't know. And one, one little caveat I'd add, not really a caveat, it's just that, yes, it's great that now people are waking up. I mean, it's horrible that the attacks have happened, obviously, and it's horrible that it had to get to this. It's great that people are waking up to how evil woke is. But then again, you you do go, why now? And it's And of course, it's it's good that, that the horrors against Jewish people inspire them to wake up because that's the correct moral thing. But then why, why now? Because you, Nikki Haley wrote, no more federal money for colleges and universities that allow anti-Semitism to flourish on campus. Yeah, fine. But then Matt Walsh goes, hatred of white males has been flourishing on college campuses for decades. Why didn't you want to cut off funding for that? And then Oren McIntyre adds, consistent problem with conservatism. Couldn't speak against affirmative action until it hurt Asians. Couldn't defend sex differences until their destruction hurt women. Couldn't speak against campus hate until it impacted Jews. And there is something in there. It's like, why is it taken till now? Maybe just because, you know, people have affection for the Jewish people. People know the historical, uh, you know, horrors. But why is it taken till now for so many people to wake up to what was the obvious hatred and evil of wokeness? Anyway, I mean, if you're a white man, you've not been able to avoid it for the last decade. Mm. I suppose... It's it's partly because um, even even liberal people who aren't themselves woke nevertheless think they might have a point about there needing to be a correction. Uh, people of colour, women, LGBT people needing to be given more opportunities, suffering a certain amount of prejudice and so forth. So they think even though they're guilty of overreach and they're exaggerating the scale of the problem. They might have a point. So they're sort of inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt, indulge them. Um, and um, had they actually, you know, had, had a kind of woke cult set about slaughtering, um, you know, heterosexual white men and killed them on this sort of scale, then maybe people, you know, the scales would have fallen from people's eyes, and they would have realised just what a toxic ideology they were dealing with. Um, but nothing like nothing, nothing like this has ever happened before to kind of reveal just how ugly the true face of wokeism is. Yeah, I mean, there probably is some truth in that. that it's very hard to get sympathy for the white man if you're a white man who doesn't feel they've had privilege. Had privilege, you, you're very. It's very easy to go. This is all bollocks. But if you're one of those ones like, oh, yeah, maybe I am privileged. Yeah, it might take something like this. But still, many won't wake up. No, that's, mean, that's, the, that's the extraordinary thing. You, you'd expect, I mean, like, like the people you play football with, um, who I imagine are not hardcore woke, but, you know, at, at arm's length woke, uh, not kind of, not, 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 not members of the congregation who go to the woke church every Sunday, probably not people who would have come out of their houses and taken the knee um during the BLM imbroglio 
though I don't know, maybe they would have done. Um, but you would have thought that people like that, you know, often very successful professionals, very well educated, um, part of the metropolitan elite, that people like that on discovering that the woke church has a, a really disturbing amount of tolerance or at the very least a blind spot about the atrocities committed in Israel on October 7th, that they would begin to wake up. They would begin to think, oh, well, hang on a minute. Maybe you had a point, Nick. Um, maybe these people aren't just typical students and radicals. Maybe there is something pretty sinister and unpleasant about them. And maybe this is the kind of end game, the barbaric slaughter of their ideological enemies, which would include us. Um, uh, but no, it doesn't. It doesn't, it doesn't see, they don't seem to have woken up and smelt the coffee yet, do they, as a result of what's happened? They don't seem to. If you want to take my football team as an example, and I think I mentioned last week, we had to hear all about how Gary Lineker was amazing when that was breaking. I had to hear about how the government were far right and Swella Brabham was evil. These are all the things I had to just swallow. And I don't say anything, of course, in the group. And then we had to, and obviously when, when it was Ukraine, it was all about F Putin in the group. But when it was this Israel thing, nothing, total silence. And you go, okay, now you're silent on this issue in what you've established is now a political football group, you know, mainly football, but occasionally goes into politics at certain key events, but nothing on this. And I do find it strange. And I do wonder, will they even follow it? Do they even know what's going on? I mean, they know what's going on in terms of the events. But if they follow the BBC and then they're not on X and so on, will they really see the culture war side of it? Or will they just sort of go along thinking, oh, yeah, that's a bad conflict and, yeah, the both sides and blah, blah, blah. Will they really see this kind of cultural well, aspect of it? Maybe the fact that it's maybe the reason they're kind of doggedly sticking um, uh, to, to, you know, their tribes is because this is quite quite quickly kind of um, divided, whether you're pro-Israel or pro-Palestine, along culture war lines. I mean, we tried to um, uh, get people from both sides um, to sign the October Declaration and had some success. So some quite prominent people in the Labour Party signed it. Um, but um, for the most part, you know, it was quite, it was much harder to get people on, um, you know, the Guardian reading liberal metropolitan left side to sign the declaration than it was kind of people who'd voted for Brexit and were conservatives. Um, and it is an issue that's kind of divided people along culture war lines. And so it's very difficult, I suppose, for all the other people on your football team to kind of admit that that they've made a mistake in siding with the woke um, because they now see themselves as, you know, being 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 on their side in the culture war and it kind of it, it makes them Lionel Shriver also wrote something about this in um in the spectator last week it's a kind of weird approach to um having opinions in which you don't kind of pick and choose between different opinions you decide which tribe you're in and then you just embrace all the opinions associated with your tribe um no matter how reprehensible some of them are, such as, you know, um, regarding Israel as a colonialist settler state, which should be wiped off the face of the map. Um, maybe that's the reason they just can't, they can't escape that kind of binary thinking. Yeah. And that's why I said Israel has fallen on the wrong side of the culture war binary. And that's it. And now you have to support Hamas. If you're on the other side, you go, Ooh, well, yeah, I mean, but what about the occupation? open-air prison, you have to say those things. You know, it, it, it's absurd. I mean, 
And the really interesting example is Ukraine. As I said in the football group, it's openly pro-Ukraine. Everyone can get their Ukraine flags out on Twitter, all the kind of usual people. But then, but not with Israel. And that's fascinating. And Diane Abbott has written a tweet today, a very Diane Abbott tweet or X post. And she says, tube driver who led chant of free, free Palestine on an underground train is suspended. Would this have happened if he was chanting free Ukraine? And it's typical Abbott, but it's like, but it is actually, although it's absurd and dumb, it is also an interesting question, which is, well, of course, well, no, firstly, but it's not the same. Now, they, of course, are going to say you've got, an, you've got an oppressor, you've got an invader, which they're claiming, of course, is Russia and Israel. But of course, Israel were invaded by Hamas. But in their mind, Israel is, is Russia. And, and, that's, and that's the mad thing. But that's where it is, it is very strange. Like it could have gone. It could have gone the other way, conceivably. Ukraine, this country full of what you could call Christian nationalists, and possibly in some cases Nazis with the Azov battalion, all this kind of thing. It could have gone away where they go, oh, okay, you know, Russia, I don't know, the West encroached, NATO encroached over the years, you know, this was an imperialist project, and actually Russia is sort of just getting its own patch of land back and there's people there speak Russian, blah, 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 blah. And by the way, they're, they're nationalists and some of them are far right in Ukraine. It could have conceivably gone that way, but it went very hard the other way. Whereas this one has gone completely the other way on what I call the cultural binary. What do you think to that, Toby? Yeah, well, I think um, the response to um, Hamas's invasion of Israel um, has, to my mind, been much more depressing and disheartening. Um, I, 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 I thought the response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, was quite heartening. It, you know, not just the response of um, NATO, Western governments, the willingness of the Ukrainian people to fight the invaders, the failure of Russia to make anything like as much progress as it was expecting to, as it encountered genuine fierce resistance, the support amongst ordinary people across the West. That was heartening because it suggested that the West wasn't, you know, a lame horse to use Osama bin Laden's metaphor. Um, there was some, some, there was still some willingness to defend it, to stand up for our values, to stand up for individual rights, liberty, democracy, uh, property rights, um, uh, defense of borders. Um, but you know, seen through that lens, actually the response to what's happened in Israel um, is really depressing because in that particular conflict, Israel is the West. Israel is the liberal democracy that defends individual rights, um, unlike almost every other Arab country. Um, uh, and yet there's a real unwillingness to defend those values amongst, you know, Ordinary. I mean, governments have been pretty good, uh, but amongst kind of the intelligentsia, amongst the metropolitan elite, amongst young people, um, they're all siding with the kind of, uh, you know, the jihadists, um, the people who want to just, who would ultimately like to destroy the West, wipe us all, not just Israel, all off the face of the earth. Yeah. Someone put a really good breakdown of this, actually, called ACE who's at TradNorm on X. Don't know anything about them. This is the only time I've seen their account, so don't don't at me if they turn out to be some sort of lunatic. But they put this very insightful tweet with the different flags. They said supporting, and it's just emoji pictures of the flags, but I'll just say them out loud because there's no way I can do that verbally. So it says supporting Palestine 
and Ukraine, liberal, libtard, anti-imperialist, which is the kind of people we've just been discussing, supporting Palestine and Russia, based third worldist, and I've definitely seen that people with that take, you could, yeah, on, on X. Then supporting Israel and Ukraine, pro-NATO and Western imperialism. This makes sense. Very much a sort of Leo Kurz position. Then supporting Israel and Russia, dangerous lunatic. <laughs> I was like, oh, I think I'm dangerous lunatic is what I realized. <laughs> I'm not really, guys. But I had some qualms with Zelensky and the kind of bit weird the way Trudeau and all the globalists were getting behind Ukraine. But I'm, I've moved to a more sensible sort of position. But I was joking with Leo that I was dangerous lunatic because... That is it, isn't it, Toby? I mean, yeah, you know, you can be, it makes, it is consistent to be Ukraine and Israel. You go, yeah, okay, he's defending the West and, and our allies. Mm. And the other one, yeah, you, Palestine and Russia, you can see that. I've seen a lot of people going with that kind of view. And then we've been discussing the liberal lift anti but is, is that about right? Yeah, the, the supporting Ukraine and Hamas, that does seem just completely retarded and confused. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what we've been discussing. I mean, that that's, is that's most most of our friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Madness. So that, that guy put it really well. That's where we are. Um, before we get to Will's section, I have to quickly do a topic that I've trailed in the intro because I've I've I've, I've said it now, so we have to do it. Which is Greta and the Octopus, which sounds like it's some sort of um, like a spin-off fan fiction. But it's uh, Greta posted this picture. It was her with a. A card saying stand with Gaza. Someone else in the picture had climate justice now, and someone else had this Jew stands with Palestine. So it's kind of bizarre meeting of free Palestine, self hating Jewish people, and climate change. I, kind of a strange amalgamation there. But Greta then had to delete this because there was an octopus in the corner, a little stuffed toy octopus. And she said, It has come to my knowledge that the stuffed animal shown in my earlier post can be interpreted as a symbol for anti-Semitism, which I was completely unaware of. And she went on, the toy in the picture is a tool often used by autistic people as a way to communicate feelings. She said, we are, of course, against any type of discrimination and condemn anti-Semitism in all forms and shapes. This is non-negotiable. That is why I deleted the last post. So a lot of people didn't believe her and Israel condemned her. And they can certainly condemn her for the sort of overt pro-Palestine stance if they want, but the the actual octopus, I'd never heard of the octopus one. Now I'm not Jewish, maybe Jewish listeners had. I'd never heard of the octopus one, but I personally didn't think she knew about the octopus because what has she got to gain from that? You know, and then she did delete it. So I actually believe Greta, and I tend to think Greta in general is probably not a bad person. I think she's just used by whoever's using it. I, I don't, when I see her, I don't tend to think she's evil. I tend to think she's just you know, being used by various interests. And of course, she has some agency. She must do, I suppose. So we don't want to take that away from her. But she deleted the post. She didn't, I think you could be aware that you didn't realize what that octopus was. However, the person composing the photo, I question, did they know? And I'd say possibly someone composing that photo did know. Yeah, um, I don't think she's, I mean, I, I think uh, you're probably right. I don't suppose she knew what the symbolism of that octopus in the photograph meant. She may not not have known it was there. Um, but it's undoubtedly true that Greta or whoever is feeding Greta these opinions isn't just, you know, um, uh, uh, a climate change activist. Um, that, that, that goes alongside all these other opinions 
um, uh, for members of their tribe, which include being pro-Palestinian and anti-Israeli. Um, and um, uh, and you know, I think uh, James Dellingpole wrote a book called Watermelons about how the greens are green on the outside, but red in the middle. And often beneath their green rhetoric is, you know, a fairly old fashioned, hard left socialist agenda. And that's yeah. certainly true of Greta or the people feeding Greta these lines. Um, uh, you know, she may not have realized what the octopus meant, but she was holding up a placard saying, you know, I support the people of Gaza. And she knows what that means. Um, so um, and one thing, one wrinkle of this story is that after this photograph had appeared, um, Israel announced that they were removing Greta Thunberg from the Israeli school curriculum. You think of Israel as being quite based, but actually, you know, if, if Greta Thunberg was on the national school curriculum, you know, a truant, um, it, it, it's like, why, why, why on earth were you doing that in the first place? It's probably not as based as we think. Um, yeah, so, people don't talk um, about Greta's truancy enough. That's the real issue, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's like she's not a role model for school kids, Israel. Take her out of your curriculum, even if she isn't, you know, on your enemy's side. Yeah, I mean, what, but yeah, so we agree that she possibly didn't know about, or probably didn't know about the octopus. But yeah, it's weird, like you say, it comes with this, we've we've discussed it quite a lot in this podcast, this tribal set of beliefs, you have to have them all, you have to have the octopus, you have to have the Palestine, you have to have the climate change, you just, just anything, anything that hates the West. It's very depressing. Just one quick last one I'll add on this whole topic is, is a little take from the comedy world that I used to belong to, which is this Kitty Lang, head of comedy at United Agents. So it's a comedy agency that has Catherine Ryan and some other fairly big acts. And she was just retweeting all these insane things. Like someone wrote, I feel like somehow the word settler has lost its meaning. If it can be understood as civilian, maybe a new phrase is needed like settler paramilitary. And then she retweeted one, y'all were excited to repost the fake beheaded babies, but these real babies now have mere hours left. And she retweeted. So she was reposting basically anything pro-Palestine with like radically pro, you know, even borderline pro Hamas, you know, uh, someone else said, if you're confused about which side to be on, there's a global multiracial, multi-faith popular movement for justice in solidarity with Palestine. There isn't one for Israel. And so she reposted that. And what this was, and Lee Kearns written a long thread about it and how appalling it is. And this was just an example of the comedy industry. And I was in it for 11 years and they just, they have extremist, and I'm talking extreme, extreme views more extreme than they would even, and these are fairly extreme things, but in private, it's even more extreme. And they're all extreme left, and they're radical, like violently, extremely left, a lot of the people in it. But whether they actually do anything is a different thing, but their beliefs. And that's normal and safe in the comedy industry. It's completely normal and safe. Whereas, you know, Jeff Norcott saying he's voting for Theresa May is edgy. And I've said that before, and it's completely absurd, but this is just an example of it. So she got completely called out on this because they've just been getting away with it. And now, I'm not a pro cancel culture guy, although I'm at the point where it's like, maybe we do just have to fight fire with fire. I don't know. But, you know, I've sort of like I said to Josh, maybe he, he was, he was having to go at a particular comedian and tagging their agent. And I thought maybe that's not great. This guy's not really the enemy, but to go after agents seems a little different because they've been going after acts and dropping acts for, you know, for, for all sorts of things. Andrew Lawrence got dropped immediately. They're not comedians. And, you know, if they're posting stuff like this, maybe, you know, maybe it is fair game. I've just noticed she's blocked her account. Again, now I hope she's okay personally, because I don't want her to like, you know, she, she's blocked it. She took down her account. She put it back up and put a statement out. 
and I've just seen that it's gone again. So it does make you wonder. She said, I would like to unreservedly apologize for my retweets on social media surrounding the horrendous attacks in Israel on October 7th. With hindsight, I realize how naive I've been and that much of the information on social media surrounding the conflict is unsubstantial and hurtful. I should have taken time to consider this beforehand. But they don't take time. They don't have a clue. And and they just are used to having very extreme views, but no one really cares because it's peace times and it's the comedy world. And you just assume it's sort of radical stupidity rather than evil. But then is there a point where that stupidity becomes evil and, and the other thing is that you're rewarded in the comedy world no matter how far left your opinions are you're rewarded you'll get on the apollo and so on as, as long as you've got the correct extremist far left opinions but this is a it's again again with this conflict now that's maybe changing slightly to where people are going maybe that's a bit off so anyway what yeah. any take on that yeah well one of the ways in which the woke virus is transmitted from one person to another is that when the person becomes infected, they don't realize they've become infected. They don't realize that they're embracing this set of extreme hard left political opinions. They just think it's kind of normal, common sense, morally unambiguous. And so, you know, when someone gets cancelled in the comedy world, when Andrew Lawrence gets cancelled in the comedy world, one of the reasons so many people in the comedy world get on board with that, why so many venues get on board with that, why Chortle gets on board with it, is the people doing the cancelling don't say we're cancelling him because he has different political opinions to us and we're, we're intolerant of any dissent. We hate people who disagree with us. Um, that if they, if they said that, if they were open about it, if they were open with themselves about why they were doing it, it wouldn't be nearly as effective. It wouldn't have that kind of viral quality. Most people would think, well, that's a bit intolerant of you. You know, why should someone be cancelled just because they have a different political view to you? So they don't present it like that. Instead, they say, I've no objection to the fact that um, he votes conservative or voted for Brexit. But I do draw the line at hate speech and racism. And what he said was racist. And in that way, they embed their hard left views by disguising them as much less extremist than they are. And they sort of pretend that they're not politically contentious. Who wants to defend racism? Who's going to defend hate speech? Surely we all agree, no matter what our politics are, that those things should not have no place in the comedy world. Um, and yet, They've now revealed the lie um, because um, this, you know, here, here's this kind of comedy agent um, retweeting, you know, vile anti-Semitism, what by any measure is the most disgusting hate speech, making it clear that it's not about racism. It's not about hate speech. It's just because you politically disapprove of Andrew Lawrence's views. Yeah, that is absolutely it. That is that's a, a decent summation of, of it. Um, I was piled on for not getting a gig because I'm a straight white man, but this is the kind of thing that's okay. That's what's so infuriating about the comedy world. It's like, so Nick doesn't get a gig because he's a straight white man. and he, I don't care, but I share it with the, with the sensitive information taken out just for a laugh and say, this is funny. And it like, how oh, I'm not getting gigs. You know, I dream of a day when I'll be judged by the content of my character and so on. And it's like, I get piled on by Chortle, uh, by Jason Manford, Richard Herring ends up in the Express, the Telegraph, the Jeremy Vine show, because I just said, hey, it's weird how 
you don't get a gig based on your immutable characteristics in comedy. And that's like horrendous. And I'm evil and a bigot for saying that. And I got called horrific things for a week by all, all and sundry. And yet you can retweet just, yeah, the most insane propaganda about beheaded babies. Well, it turns out you can't because she has got a bit of trouble about it. So maybe that is the line. But the lines are pretty far apart. I mean, my one is got didn't get a gig because of racism and sexism. And I'm the victim. I'm piled on for that. And on the other side, it's retweeting propaganda about beheading babies. It's like, they're, they're like those are apparently the two boundaries. I mean, what an absurd business. That's why I had to get out of that business. What a sick business. What a, it's so messed up. You see what I'm trying to say? I'm not phrasing it that well, but my thing was considered bad, which is like, if anything, I'm the victim. Whereas theirs, you have to go so far to even touch the sides. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you, you do really get the impression that many people on the woke left have in the past two and a half weeks inadvertently said the quiet part out loud and got into trouble for it. But hopefully it will wake a few people up. Well, I've spoken to some Jewish people who say, yeah, I, I, I have thought about immigration a bit more now. I have thought maybe, you know, the left aren't right on everything and open borders, whatever it is, or more relaxed borders. Like, oh, there are people in the country now who want, who want to kill me. And you do wonder, will it change people? Because it's very easy to be liberal and, and say all the trendy things. But we've seen what that means in, la- in the last few weeks, what's happened with so-called multicultural Britain. And I just wonder if it's going to wake some people up to that or if they'll just carry on calling everyone racist and, you know, voting for left-wing parties. Let's see. Let's see. I think that's pretty much all our stories. It's, it's, it's already a pretty epic podcast. So now let's go over to Will with our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Will Jones with the top stories of the week. Will, we ran quite a few stories uh, on the Daily Skeptic in the past seven days about the ongoing COVID inquiry. Do you want to tell us about a few of those? That's right, Toby. It's been a bumper week at the COVID inquiry uh, this week. First up, we had uh, Professor Lockdown himself, Neil Ferguson from Imperial College, notoriously modelled with his team at Imperial. Ahead of the first lockdown in middle of March 2020, uh, 500,000 deaths in the UK alone uh, if the government did not impose more more restrictive measures, lockdown, basically. It was one of the key turning points in, the, in that month, in that run-up to, uh, run to the first lockdown, and here's appearing at the COVID inquiry. But uh, incredibly, he told the COVID inquiry that he, he denied ever calling for lockdown. He said that ahead of that, ahead of that lockdown, that he did not call for lockdown. He, he claimed it was a lot more complex. And he says, I know I'm associated very much with a particular policy. Oh, uh, yeah, you're, te- you're telling us, uh, Professor Lockdown. Uh, but he, he claimed that I don't think I stepped over the line to say we need to do this now. But what he claimed was, he said, what I tried to do was at times, which he admits was stepping outside the scientific advisory roles, so he admitted that, was to try to and focus people's minds on what was going to happen and the consequences of current trends kind of kind of reminds me toby of of the kid who kind of walks towards his his little sister waving his his fists around madly but says that he's just walking towards her with his fists waving around and if she happens to get hit by one of them well that's her own fault kind of plausible deniability what do you think well we've heard this line from neil ferguson before when lockdown skeptics have directly engaged with him his first line of defense has always been my job is only to advise the government by presenting them with the likely consequence, likely consequences of different options. I don't decide what to do. That's for the politicians. Yet, of course, rather unhelpfully, 
the politicians denounce renounce any responsibility themselves and say uh, we're just following the science. Um, so there's a kind of unwillingness on either side to take responsibility. But yes, I think uh, it's a bit disingenuous of him to claim that he wasn't pushing the government towards one of the options. Particularly as a further revelation from the COVID inquiry this week was that he actually emailed and spoke to a key number 10 advisor uh, on March the 13th. Uh, that was during uh, that was three days before his paper came out. And it was at the time when Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty and others were going around the television stations telling people that they were going for herd immunity. And that was the that was when that we had that huge backlash against that concept. That's when that that started. That was the key days when the government flipped its strategy after that. Um, And we actually now have this revelation that, in fact, uh, following uh, that round of TV interviews where the government uh, said it was following the sensible Swedish approach, Ferguson actually emailed uh, number 10 advisors, uh, the very one, in fact, that Dominic Cummings said was responsible for convincing him and others like Boris to uh, listen to to the imperial modelling. He contacted them in order to really push home, uh, press home the, as he says, the so-called consequences of not following his his mere advice. Uh, So I think he was more than a little passive uh, in in all of this. Yes. Um, But clearly, didn't believe his own advice because, um, as we know, um, he broke the rules himself and visited his mistress when he tested positive for COVID. So evidently didn't think it was quite as scary as his own modelling implied. Professor Pants down. <laughs> Professor, from Professor Lockdown to Professor Pants down in quite uh, a short interval. And then Mark Walhouse also testified before the Hallett inquiry uh, last week. Yeah, this is uh, University of Edinburgh's uh, Mark Woolhouse, one of the certainly one of the more sceptical members of Sage and uh, the modelling group on Sage, um, Spimo or Spimo or Spim or however you say it. Uh, he was he was often uh, saying things that were more in line with lockdown sceptics, uh, as we were then point of view, and uh, and he uh, actually told the COVID inquiry that they were never asked his team. So his was the main team uh, doing modelling for for the government, uh, providing that input uh, from models. And he says they were never asked to model the the harms of lockdown, or and they were never m- asked to model alternative scenarios for how uh, for what might happen if other strategies other than lockdown were used. So so he was never asked to that and to do that. And he also said, as far as he could tell, no one else was doing it either. He said so so a real a real stunning and uh, an, an incredible and and very. Uh, telling admission from uh, this uh, really senior modeler uh, for the government, basically saying that uh, what we all knew really, but it's good to have it set out to the COVID inquiry, uh, set out there that no one uh, from the horse's mouth, as it were, uh, that no one was doing that modeling, no one was doing the cost benefit analysis, no one was looking at the harms of it. Uh, They were all myopically uh, focused on preventing the spread of this one new uh, flu-like virus. Yeah, at the time, that's true, although a government department did do did make an attempt to model the harms of locking down at a later stage after we'd already locked down. OK, so um, what do you say to this counter argument, Will, which is, uh, uh, and just, just to be clear, I, I don't believe this argument is a particularly good one. Uh, so I'm not defending the government's decision to lock down. But this would have been their defence, I think, for not commissioning research about the potential harmful effects of locking down before making the decision to lock down. Their defence was, would have been, um, well, we don't think that if we fail to lock down, it's probable that 200,000, 210,000 people will die, as report number nine produced by Imperial College 
indicates, because that report is only modelling a reasonable worst case, not a probable case. That's the reasonable worst case. And we think the reasonable worst case, not, not what's likely to happen if we fail to lock down, but what could happen if we fail to lock down, we think that is just worse than any conceivable harms uh, that might be caused by locking down. In all probability, the harm of locking down will be greater than the harm we prevent by locking down. But it's our duty as responsible custodians of the public welfare to do everything in our power to mitigate the likelihood of the worst case, the reasonable worst case scenario, materialising. And that's why we didn't we didn't feel we needed to bother looking at the probable harm of locking down, because even had that shown that the probable harm was greater than the probable harm of not locking down, it still wouldn't have been a good reason for not locking down, because it's our duty, our moral duty to mitigate the risk of the worst case scenario materialising. Well, I mean, it was nonsense because the because the, this this stuff had been looked at. Uh, we already had a pandemic plan. Uh, this this had been looked at for in the years ahead of uh, coming up to the pandemic, and the it, it had already been concluded that lockdowns and social distancing were unlikely to be effective, unlikely to be successful, and um, and in any case, were very likely to cause far more harms than they were worth. And in fact, we also know from another uh, surprising revelation from the COVID inquiry is that. Uh, Neil Ferguson um, himself actually told the government in his in his advice that this he said this event is the is in the natural disaster category and the cure for example massive social distancing shutdowns and this is Neil Ferguson saying this could be worse than the disease so even Neil Ferguson was pointing out to them that and he said there's a rational basis to the decision uh, which he would say the science supports for deciding uh, to not lock down but to continue with their mitigation yeah. strategy. I mean I think I think the yeah I think I think the difficulty we face is that it's not immediately clear that rationality requires us to do the thing we think is going to cause the least harm um on a balance of probability. Uh, and and the same argument crops up with respect to measures we can take to mitigate um the like sorry, mitigate the worst case scenario in climate change models. Um, so the argument would be, okay, there's only a one in, there's only a 5% chance that if we do nothing to reduce carbon emissions between now and 2050, if the world does nothing to reduce carbon emissions between now and 2050, there's only a 5% chance that the planet will disappear in a ball of fire. But because if that happens, the impact will be so catastrophic. We have a responsibility to reach net zero by 2050, even though that'll be unbelievably harmful and send us back to the Stone Age. We nevertheless have a responsibility to, to, to do whatever we can to mitigate the risk of this worst case scenario, albeit a very unlikely one, materialising. The same calculus was used during the lockdown as it's used for net zero. It's not an argument about what's the best thing to do to minimise harm on the balance of probability. It's about what moral responsibility do we have to cause harm in order to prevent a low risk but high consequence scenario materialising? 
Sure, but that way all freedom goes. You know, I mean, that's the that's the justification for all kinds of security based measures. Well, that, yeah, that that's not a killer argument. If you base public policy entirely on on the concept of what could possibly go, go wrong and um, that is that is completely catastrophic, and how can we um, and therefore what do we have to do, regardless of the cost. Uh, to everything we hold dear to um, to prevent that, then you'll you'll never make good public policy, will you? Well, no, of course not. But um, you won't persuade the advocates of lockdown or net zero that that's a good reason to abandon the policy. They think, yes, it may mean curtailing people's liberty on a hitherto unseen scale, as it did during the lockdowns. But nonetheless, it's the right thing to do because we have to do whatever we can to mitigate the risk of this uh, low probability, high consequence scenario materialising. That's why on uh, locked on Daily Skeptic, um, we always look at and um, others uh, and other sites as well that look at evidence, and it's all about looking at the evidence. Uh, what does the science saying? So with COVID, it was looking at the early evidence for what was the actual fatality rate, what was the actual prognosis for people, how many people were actually likely um, to be to be killed, who were how ill were they already or how old? Uh, how how did that compare to a normal flu season? To uh, what was the actual impact? Trying to keep things in perspective, and that's why on for climate change as well we. Spend, uh, we spend a lot of, Chris, our environment editor, spends a lot of time digging into scientific papers, listening to what the scientists are saying, looking at the evidence uh, for what's actually likely to be happening, what's actually going on, and what, the, and what scientific evidence and empirical evidence is actually saying, uh, because it's all about focusing on what's, um, on what's real and what's not just uh, come out of a, yeah. of a catastrophic model. That's true. And I think that goes some way to helping us win the argument, but not all the way, because evidence is just an input and the output depends upon your tolerance for risk, the extent to which you prioritize safety over liberty. And one of the things that makes our opponents difficult to defeat is that they make a kind of twofold argument. First, they say we have a powerful, overwhelming moral duty to mitigate these low probability, high consequence risks. Um, And in addition, if we fail to do that, the people who will suffer the most are the marginalised, the historically disadvantaged, the global south. Um, That kind of two-pronged combination of this kind of uh, safety-first approach plus kind of woke moral righteousness, that's quite a potent cocktail and seems to be carrying the day in most of the chanceries of the world. But again, if you actually look at the actual evidence, then while this low probability, supposedly high consequence event may affect the vulnerable more, the uh, the, the measures that you're taking, uh, net zero or lockdowns, are guaranteed and did in fact, as we can see, have a hugely disadvantage, disadvantageous impact on the weakest and the poorest and the most vulnerable, uh, both in the developing world, uh, who suffer terribly under lockdowns for a disease that was far less um, impactful than the diseases that they suffer with uh, most of the time, the diseases which were uh, which were left not getting their proper treatment, and also just malnutrition, which is one of the biggest killers in the in the developing world. And of course, lockdown also massively negatively impacting uh, poorer people in this country. And with the cost of living crisis, uh, which, as we know, is is to a large extent caused by the over, massive overreaction and overspending of the lockdown years. We can see that that uh, that negative, that terrible negative impact um, ongoing. So 
They may say that they're trying to protect the vulnerable, but in fact, the measures that they take, the over massive overreaction, extreme measures they take, always guaranteed to have huge de- deleterious uh, effect on the people they're supposedly they're supposedly trying to protect. Yes, that's true, and I think that's not a bad argument either. Um, and when you make that argument um, against net zero, um, that if you force middle-income and low-income countries to stop developing, they will be harmed much more than if you just freeze the development of high-income countries. They say, yes, you're right, and that's why we should pay them reparations, with the UK being responsible for an enormous slice of those reparations, because we were the original sinners having invented the Industrial Revolution. Anyway, on the subject of lockdown fanatics, we also heard from Angela McLean at the lockdown inquiry last week. Sorry, not the lockdown inquiry, the COVID inquiry. That's right. Yep. This is uh, Rishi Sunak's new uh, chief scientific advisor. He was uh, she was appointed to replace Patrick Valance last year, or was it earlier this year? Anyway, recently, and and it's it's come out in the COVID inquiry that she was a a lockdown uh, fanatic. Presumably, still is. We don't know uh, for sure, but there's been no evidence. There's been no contrary evidence. Uh, she was message sending. Uh, what's come out is te- WhatsApp messages uh, exchanged. Uh, during key meetings where actual lockdown sceptics like Carl Hennigan, Sinetra Gupta uh, and others uh, were were invited to make presentations to Downing Street, uh, to the Prime Minister. Uh, so they were invited there and they were exchanging messages, uh, which were which were really, uh, frankly, rude and clearly, obviously, pro-lockdown. And in which, uh, in one of them, she actually called her new, uh, her new boss, uh, the now Prime Minister, then Chancellor, uh, Dr. Death. Because of his uh, his clear lockdown scepticism, and in particular his his eat out to help out scheme uh, designed to get the get the country back on its feet after the first lockdown to really push for reopening, and and she uh, she that's what she nicknamed him, Doctor Doctor Death, uh, and that was generally her attitude towards sceptics. And she was also quite rude about Carl Hennigan, wasn't she? Absolutely. While he was presenting, she'd messaged her colleagues uh, to call him a, um, and if you'll pardon my language here, but uh, uh, our listeners need to know, they, she called him a, a fuckwit, which is obviously highly professional language. Uh, and even more appallingly, Carl Hennigan appeared himself at the COVID inquiry this week. Uh, they actually allowed a, a sceptic to, to talk to them. I know, shocking. And this and this was actually put to him uh, directly during the COVID inquiry, uh, which, is, uh, which is obviously extremely extremely shocking why are they asking him about the uh, the rude names that he's been called by uh, the the now chief scientific advisor rather than the the scientific evidence for lockdowns and the things that he's actually a specialist in so uh, he was he was he was shockingly treated uh, by the by the covid inquiry and many people have pointed out the huge gulf between the the very very uh, dis- well, disgraceful way that he was treated by the um, by the inquiry uh, really put really really adversarial uh, really uh, in in a way that nobody else um, has been uh, who are treated much more differentially. Uh, so really really showing their their cards on that one, I think. Yeah, no, quite shocking. Um, and the contrast between the way in which John Edmonds, one of the modellers in SPI, was treated when he testified before the inquiry in the morning. The contrast between that and how Carl Hennigan was treated when he testified in the afternoon was, it was black and white, chalk and cheese. Um, He was treated as a hostile witness. And as you say, the first person to testify before the Hallett inquiry who's been treated in that way. Why? Because he's a lockdown sceptic. And Tom Jefferson, his colleague with whom he 
co-authors Trust the Evidence's Substack blog, um, we republished a piece by him that originally appeared on Trust the Evidence last week, in which he said it's absolutely clear now that the lockdown, sorry, that the COVID inquiry has made up its mind. And the conclusion will be that locking down was exactly the right thing to do. Uh, The only mistake we made was not doing it harder and faster. Um, And given that we now know this, more or less, um, is there any point in, in them, him and Carl, continuing to cover the lockdown sorry, the COVID inquiry in the detail that they have been. Um, and I'm not sure what they've decided to do about that, but I wouldn't be surprised if they just decided to wash their hands of it now. And worse, it was actually John Edmonds that Angela McLean was actually um, WhatsApp messaging, calling uh, Carl Hennigan a fuckwit. So just to make things, just to add insult to injury. And, 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 and Baroness Hallett, the chair of the COVID inquiry, actually uh, took the trouble to praise John Edmonds for his, you know, outstanding public service by urging us all to lock down. Um, uh, and no such praise was forthcoming for Carl Hennigan. And yet, and yet Carl Hennigan was right far more of the time than John Edmonds was. So, yeah. you know, it just shows the evidence, the, 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 the very uh, little role that evidence plays in all of this. Yeah. And lastly, um, just to stray beyond the COVID inquiry, there are a couple of conflicting stories about um, Britain's gas network, weren't there, this week? That's right. So we had uh, the, the man, uh, the man running Britain's gas network, uh, the head of national uh, gas, John Butterworth. He's the chief executive, and he has uh, come out and made clear that Britain will need gas to avoid blackouts for decades. He says, and he points out that wind power is insufficient for our energy needs for nearly three quarters of the year. Uh, so that three quarters of the year we will always need because the wind just doesn't blow hard enough. Uh, we will always need uh, some kind of backup and that backup is set to be gas uh, for decades to come. And he was responding um, essentially to comments from Sir John Armit, the head of the National Infrastructure Commission uh, last week, who called, uh, this is this is quite, I'm using the word shocking quite a bit uh, this, this week, but this is shocking. Uh, he called for the UK's domestic gas network to be decommissioned to encourage people to switch to heat pumps, because you know, it's such good technology that we actually need to literally shut off the existing energy network in order to get them to move over to it. And his commission in their report also recommended that private vehicles, that cars, were banned from cities across the UK. Uh, this is the kind of thing that the main senior government advisors uh, are, are telling the government needs to be done in order to hit uh, net zero. I mean, you know, at least they're being honest, eh? Yeah, I mean, yeah, surprising, or perhaps not surprising, that after 13 years of uh, uh, conservatives in 10 Downing Street, um, the head of our national infrastructure network is a bug-eyed net zero fanatic who wants to shut down uh, our energy network to force people to use heat pumps and wants cars banned from cities. I mean, it's just, it's it's breathtaking. Anyway, um, thank you, Will Jones, with our top stories of the week. Thanks, Toby. All right, that was Will with our top stories of the week. Now I'm back with Toby. And Toby, do you have our third ad of the day? I do. We've got three ads this week just to add to our bumper episode. And this is from our most loyal, devoted, uh, steadfast sponsor, Thor. So Oscar Wilde once said, an idea that is not dangerous is unworthy of being called an idea at all. Perhaps it's dangerous to admit, but the idea of my podcast sponsorship adverts is not to sell you anything 
After all, I'm something of a pitching and selling expert, as recognised by MIT and many other commercial clients. Why pay to advertise here then? Number one, I love feedback, e.g. Thor, I'm not 100% sure exactly what you might do for me, but I enjoy your sceptic podcast ads and find them both interesting and entertaining. And number two, I support Toby, Nick, Will, and indeed Jordan in order to create ground-level connection with my fellow sceptics. Because you see, commercial projects find me in many ways. Trusted introductions, previous client recommendations, and I also enjoy plenty of repeat business. But it's truly a pleasure to connect with fresh free thinkers. So if that's you, send me a message, say hello. You can WhatsApp me on 044-07906, sorry, plus 44-07906-321-593. That's plus 44-07906-321-593 or linkedin.com slash in slash Thorholt. And do please let me know what you think of my brainstorms with Dapper Laughs and Tom Stade on Thor's Hippie Hut podcast. That's hippie spelt H I. PPI. And the details of how to connect with Thor will be underneath this podcast on the Daily Skeptic website. All right. Thanks to Thor. Now let's go to everyone's favorite section. It's Peak Woke. So, Peak Woke, Toby, here we are again. Uh, It's a long podcast, but we'll do a few Peak Wokes. Do you want to start? I've got so many I could do, but maybe you can go first. There's a lot, um, but... um... I thought I'd start with um, uh, a good example of get woke, go broke, um, which is um, Victoria's Secret has had to abandon its woke feminist makeover after a sales slump. So Victoria's Secret, I think in uh, 2019, um, uh, retired the angels and decided that they were no longer going to present uh, laundry through a male lens. Their models were no longer going to be the embodiment of male sexual desire. They weren't going to be these fantasy women. They were going to be real women uh, because they recognized that women didn't buy laundry to make themselves more attractive to men but because they did it for themselves. And um, and then in 2020, there, were, there was a, a, the New York Times did an expose of um, sexual harassment um, at the Victoria's Secret company. And then it was revealed that one of the executives had a relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. So they then doubled down on this retreat and they hired these trans models and uh, body positive models. And um, uh, it turned out that um, trying to advertise laundry uh, with um, this broader, more diverse range of women uh, uh, wasn't very successful and sales have slumped. So now they've said, we're going back to sexiness. Sexiness is back, Um, which just proves how kind of completely cynical the embrace of kind of feminism was in the first place. You know, they thought that it would boost their profits to kind of adopt this kind of aggressive patina. Um, When it turned out not to, they've just ditched it like um, a hot potato. Um, So yeah, um, Victoria's Secret illustrating the get woke, go broke lesson once again. Yeah, and we covered this several times on GB because I've been on GB News so much. And I did it on um, Free Speech Nation. And I said, look, at the end of the day, people want to see attractive people. That's why I'm on TV. That got the biggest laugh of the night for me. And I actually was offended by how big a laugh (laughs) that got. It really pissed me off. But um, yeah, it's so funny reading this piece. People want, obviously, advertising is aspirational, especially this kind of advertising. And people want to see 
you know, attractive people. But they came up with this hilarious fudge, Toby, of trying to somehow be both. They said sexiness can be inclusive. Can it? It's the least <laughs> inclusive thing there is. You don't want to say, hey, hey, come back to mine. We'll talk about marginalized communities. Sexiness is not inclusive, is it? It's, and the whole thing about models and the fashion world is it's as elitist as it can be. You're born yeah. genetically gifted and you happen to be beautiful. And it's just radically unfair. And then people look at you and go, ooh, it's like the most elitist thing possible. Yeah, it's like it's like um, footballers, um, you know, proclaiming their allegiance to equality, isn't it? It's like, yeah. no, you really don't believe in equality. Even your poverty, even the leading footballing poverty campaigner has two Rolls Royces. You know, there's, there's nothing egalitarian about that. Right. And that's fine. That's how it is. We need all these things, you know, but don't pretend to be something else. Let's just enjoy it for what it is. It's women in underwear who look nice and you can buy it if you want. I mean, right? I don't, guys, yeah. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, on a similar ish note, there was another one here. Emily Blunt issues groveling apology for fat shaming waitress. And people have got to stop issuing groveling apologies. Just issue a, a, a normal apology, guys. Don't grovel. They're all groveling, aren't they, now? No matter what they are, it's all groveling. Anyway, this was absurd because it was from the Jonathan Ross show in 2012. So it's an 11 year old comment. And Ross actually set it up by saying everyone in America is enormous. And Emily merely said, well, the girl who served me was certainly enormous. That's all she said. Absolutely shocking. And now she's had to say, oh, I'm so sorry for any hurt cause. I was old enough to know better. It's like, oh, oh, get lost, Emily. I mean, imagine Emily Blunt's character in The Devil Wears Prada, if we're going to talk about fashion and stuff. She would say loads of stuff like that. She'd say way worse than that. And that's why people are watching it and finding it amusing. It's funny. It's like when Stanley Tucci says, who is that sad little person? Are we doing a before and after piece I don't know about? That's a funny bitchy comment. So what's wrong with Emily on a talk show saying that it's just a, a case of actors struggling on talk shows to say good anecdotes? That's all I think it is. Yeah, uh, I didn't think anything could diminish Emily Blunt in my eyes, Nick. I'm just, she is my <laughs> Victoria's <laughs> Secret model, my ideal woman, um, <laughs> the embodiment of desire. Uh, I've, 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 I've had a crush on her since I... I, I, I think I discovered her. So I, I, when I was a drama critic for The Spectator, I saw this um, biographical play about Van Gogh at the National Theatre, and it, it wasn't terribly good. But his housekeeper's daughters, who he had a kind of unrequited crush on, was played by, I don't know, an 18-year-old Emily Blunt. And she was a complete unknown. She hadn't been on telly done no films as far as I know nothing this was her you know she was just she was but I spotted her and singled her out for praise in my review in the spectator and said she is like uh, she's the new she what mark my words one day she'll be bigger than Emma Thompson she has that kind of English rose sex appeal of course she's about a thousand times sexier than Emma Thompson um if you're allowed to say that without being inclusive um (laughs) but uh yeah no i've had a i've been a huge fan um i once met her sister and spent a fantastic evening with her sister felicity um drinking and talking and she was you know she was really easy to get along with great fun to hang out with isn't Um, she married to stanley tucci now she's now married to stanley tucci yeah Uh, but i think they're both you know i've always thought that you know i've never met emily they're both fantastic girls really entertaining really funny slightly heretical seditious politically incorrect you know um kind of witty english roses um i wish she hadn't apologized it's really disillusioning yeah yeah she does seem cool i'm sorry that's uh, ruined it for you and Toby, she's usually chat- pretty good on the chat shows, isn't she? She's usually pretty funny. Yeah. Age gap aside, I'm not sure what the age gap is. You you tragically would probably have had a chance for her. I say tragically because it, it annoys me. 
you've just been out with all these, these astonishing women just by, and I, I've asked sources close to Mr. Young and they, they've indicated that it's because of just sheer, shutzpah, is that the word? Just sheer, just overconfidence. Because I've never understood how, you, how you've done it. And I looked at it. It turns out it's just overconfidence. You just you just ask you just ask them. Whereas sane people think oh, I've got no chance with that girl. Well, in in the case of my wife, um, you know, um, we, we we dated. She broke up with me um, for a year. We started dating again. She broke up with me again. I forced her to honor a commitment to come to. Um, uh, Val d'Azer with me on Millennium Eve 1999. Well, <laughs> I, I morally blackmailed her into it. I said, I, we, we booked tickets. She, she broke up with me before we were due to take the trip. I said, well, if you're not coming, I'll go on my own. And I painted this picture of myself riding the bus from the airport to the ski resort, sitting there with the empty seat next to me and sort of guilted her into it. And she said, look, I'll only come on a strict understanding that it'll just be as friends. Okay. Nothing's going to happen. Don't get any ideas into your head. And, uh, and I, of course I, I, I had a ring at that point. And when we were in Val d'Azer, I, I planned to propose to her on Millennium Eve, but we had a fight and she went to bed early in a half. And then the next day I proposed and she said, no. And, <laughs> uh, and, and uh, she said, you know, I love you, but I'm not in love with you, which is not what you want to hear when you're trying to persuade the wow. love of your life to marry you. Um, and uh, but then she very reluctantly agreed to get back together again on a trial basis, provided I would move back from New York and we would live together in London. I did that. I proposed again. And this time she said, I'll think about it. And eventually <laughs> I just wore her down. So my, the moral of this story is that stalking works. OK, this is this is. Wow. I, 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 <laughs> I didn't know any of that. And I've, I've talked to your wife in some detail, but I didn't know any of that. That's so, I mean, yeah, that's why, I mean, that's why I'm alone. Cause I just don't have the sheer nerve. This must be like a, a posh Oxbridge thing or something that we just didn't get. I know you went to a comprehensive school. No one thinks you did, but where does it come I from, do. Toby? This relentless nerve and confidence. I think it's just, it's just, I think it's just, you know, drive, isn't it? It's, um, and I think it, it, it's not, not so much confidence as just, persistence tenacity um uh, and uh yeah i i think nick you know um and i think i think women are biologically predis- predisposed to um uh uh be attracted to men who are very persistent i mean of course you know i'm not i'm not suggesting anyone should go out and stalk someone who's rejected them numerous times i'm sure most of the time it, it doesn't work at all and you'll probably end up in prison um but just being persistent not giving up being steadfast, um, being loyal to your one love, um, that cuts through because women want men who are going to stick around after they've had babies. You know, um, they don't want men who are going to piss off and go off with another woman. Um, so, mm. you know, they're biologically programmed, at least some of them, to um, uh, uh, be attracted to men who show that kind of steadfastness, that tenacity, that loyalty, people who are going to stick to you no matter what. Yeah, it definitely um, shows tenacity. It definitely shows you're really into them. That is true. But not many people could pull off the breakup to proposal gambit that you went. <laughs> I mean, who starts a holiday? We've broken up. And I'm not just going to try and like patch it up. Over the I'm going for a proposal 
from broken. I mean, that is a hell of a leap. Even oh, even well, Toby Young couldn't bridge that gap. It was it was what the Yanks call a hail mary pass. <laughs> I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting it to succeed. And I'd actually got the ring on a sale or return basis from a friend of mine who worked in the diamond trade. And he he said it, it would have cost in the shops. It would have cost about two thousand dollars. But he'd given it to me. He said, look, if you end up. If she ends up saying yes, just give me a grand. It'll be it. that'll cover it. And um, uh, but you know, if she says no, give it back to me, no problem. And um, so when she said no, uh, and I put the ring back in my pocket, she said, "Can I see the ring again?" And I said, "Sure." And she put it on her finger, and she said, "So how much did this cost?" And I thought, well, she said no. I'm going to walk it back to the shop when I go back to New York. So I said, "Yeah, it cost us sixteen thousand dollars." <laughs> so you lied. At, at which point? At which point, lied. At which point, she uh, she started sort of holding up the light and go, "Oh, really? Wow, that's actually wow." And I thought, "Oh no, now she's going to say yes, (laughs) you know." And uh, and then I'll have this kind of sword of Damocles hanging over me that any second she's going to find out what it really costs, and then it really will all be over. I felt like George Costanza in Seinfeld, so I'm suddenly trying to get the ring back off my wife so I could take it back to the shop. (laughs) Plus, Uh, mentally, you'd already you know you'd already got the money back in your head. I know. Oh, that's unbelievable. And I, I mean, I have sold an engagement ring, by the way. I've been through that. So I've sort of made, so I, who am I to judge, Toby? I mean, I've, I did, you know, I did the opposite. I did, I did get the ring back and, and, and sell it. So you did, I wasn't persistent like you. Um, although that was the other way around. She said yes, but I changed my mind. I'm, I'm the, the bad person, I think, in this story. But I think you're also the bad person in a different way. <laughs> but I didn't actually mean all that, actually, with your wonderful wife. I meant your ability before you went out with your wife to go out with sort of these sort of various stunning women just by asking them. And uh, it's, actually, one of the women you went out with is so stunning that she's held up in the Truman Show as the sort of dream woman that he's prepared to leave an idyllic, perfect world for. I realized that the other night. And that was like, I was re-watching the Truman Show. And I was like... It's kind of ruined me. I was like, hang on, this going out with bloody Toby. I was like, this has completely punctured this illusion for me. Yeah. Sorry no. about that. Sorry, like, Sorry. Too, too much of your private life, but, you know. <laughs> Emily Blunt, I never got anywhere near, so um, she can, you can keep Lucky her Emily. in your pantheon of fantasy babes. Okay. So that bit was a bit of toxic masculinity for you there. And um, <laughs> speaking of which, here's a sort of peak woke. Is this peak woke? The student union uh, in Cardiff banned... Men in blue shirts and chinos after their dangerous behavior. So these were the rugby freshers. And you think, yeah, that's the main problem. The fact that they're rugby freshers in Cardiff. That's why these people are causing the problem. Because if I saw Toby a sign that said rugby freshers, welcome here. I would run away from that, whatever that establishment was. Because, you know, good luck to them. But they're going to be rowdy. They're going to be a nightmare. But the, the union has blamed it on their blue shirts and chinos, which I take as an attack on straight white men because no one else would wear that outfit. And so it banned that outfit as a way to get rid of them. What's that What's that about, Toby? That's, yeah, that's just ridiculous. Is that Pete Woke? It, I don't know if it's Woke. It's, it's, yeah, but it's, it's like, uh, again, it's, it's, it's the, the example of just how hypocritical um, these kind of, uh, you know, tone, this tone policing on university campuses is, you know, uh, Ban, ban this particular outfit, lest people associate it with conservative white men, which might pe- make kind of people of colour feel victimised and oppressed. And yet it's perfectly okay to uh, to celebrate what Hamas did on October the 7th and to chant anti-Semitic slogans on campus. It's like, it's not about safety. It's all about trying to crush your political opponents. What about this one last one? NHS hospital chiefs defend 
£96,000 diversity job advert. I was thinking, where was this advert placed? Over? Was this on during the Super Bowl? But of course, it's not the advert that costs £96,000. It's for a £96,000 salary. Right. They're advertising for a diversity and inclusion person. And they sort of justify this because they say, oh, it ensures fair treatment and opportunity for everyone. And it's essential. Yes, yeah, we already had that. It was called meritocracy. This is just more diversity, inclusion, equity, die bollocks. So I don't know if you saw that one, but I thought I'd chuck it in. You know, and, and, and one of the ironies here, Nick, is that I think a majority of NHS employees aren't white. Um, and it is the UK's biggest employer. You know, it has more than a million people work for the NHS and a majority of them aren't white. Uh, and yet they still think they've got a problem with not recruiting enough non-white people. It's like they won't be happy until 100% of nurses and doctors aren't white. And then maybe they'll, they'll, they'll stop worrying about having not got the equity, diversity and inclusion policies quite right. Then they'll move on to the patients. No white patients. <laughs> That'll be next. I'm telling you. All right. Any more Pete Wokes, Toby? Uh, I may have got that wrong. Maybe forty percent, not a majority. Uh, yeah, just this. Um, Nigel Farage submitted this um, uh, subject access request to um, NatWest. I think it was his second subject access request. Wanted to know um, what had been said about him after he was debanked, and it's um, it's a treasure trove of kind of gloating on the part of the bank staff, you know, um, in WhatsApp messages, they boasted about things like single-handedly driving him out of the country, hope that knocked him down a peg or two, talked about his dodgy Russian connections, described him as sketchy. One person said, the money I'd have paid to have the agent, to have been the agent ringing him to tell him he'd been debanked. He was called Vile, a crackpot, an awful human being. Another it's, person said, um, I'd throw a milkshake at him if I was approached to open an account for him. Yeah, pretty. I mean, it's. Uh, I suppose it's. It, it isn't particularly shocking, um, but it's yet more embarrassment for Dame Alison Rose, who's about to receive what a something like a eleven point three million payout. It's like, well, if you presided over this culture of you know bilious hatred of anyone who voted Brexit, maybe you shouldn't get quite such a large payout. Yeah, and I don't know if this is peak woke so much as peak Ramona, but this is kind of. We just wanted to put it here because we covered all that Israel stuff. We didn't really have time for the main section. But yeah, it's it's a, it's, a, it's it's obscene. And there was one quite funny one. There was one guy who said, actually, I just had Nigel on the phone. He's quite nice as a client. He's actually okay. Imagine being that one guy in the office and you just, you finally felt you had to speak out. You're just there liking Farage secretly in this office. It's kind of like me in the football team. It's kind of how I feel every week. But yeah, mm. completely absurd. I mean, hopefully something happens with all this. But yeah, poor old Nigel. And some of it's libelous, isn't it? Some of the Russia stuff, they, they accuse him of fraud and Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't I, Yeah, and I, I, I dare say he could sue some of them for libel. Um, <laughs> I don't suppose he will. Um, but he's urging the board of NatWest um, not to reward Dame Alison Rose after this series of catastrophes from a public relations point of view that she's presided over in the past six months. Which I think would be fair enough. All right, is that are you happy with that for Pete Woke, Toby? Should we quickly... I think that's enough. That's enough, Pete Woke. Yeah. Okay, let's quickly review a couple of re reviews. So, someone here says another excellent episode. Keep up your good works. Uh, a bit more of the Will section would be good. Oh, there you go. Shout out for Will. Um, do you need a few, few more legal caveats on the share investment efforts? Perhaps. Don't know. Good point. Uh, someone else says the best banter. These are all five stars, by the way. 
My husband and I listen to this podcast every week. It's like listening to a couple of blokes having a chat down the pub. Keep it up. Don't change anything. Also, yes, please, to the sports commentary. I'll tune in for that. Well, I love that. Like, nice. I do an immense amount of preparation. I've got 15 articles in front of me. It's like a couple of blokes chatting down the pub. Is it though? <laughs> because it's like a deeply researched political podcast. And it's like, it's like, I mean, that bit at the end about the um, ski chalet and your n- numerous proposals, that was like that. But I, I like the compliment, but part of me goes, bit, yeah. is it? Um, well, I think, no, it is a compliment. It's just that, you know, we do all this preparation. We work really hard on it. We think about what we're going to say beforehand, but we deliver it so naturally and so casually. We just toss it off as if it's just occurred to us that it sounds like two blokes bantering down the pub, except we're like the, you know, we're, we're the kind of Victoria's Angels equivalent, Victoria's Secret Angels equivalent of blokes down the pub. We're like the ultra blokes that you could you could hope to find in your ideal fantasy pub, you know, there'd be, there'd be kind of, you know, the, the, the hanging around the bar would be these angels looking at you eagerly, hoping that you buy them a drink and take them home. And then in the corner, there'd be you and me bantering away. So after you'd kind of come back from the bus station with, um, you know, uh, Giselle Bungeon, you come and have a chat with us. <laughs> right. I like that. I love that idea where the supermodels of pub banter, and when Toby says we just toss it off, that, that's after the podcast. Um, so quick one here. Someone reports a technical matter but gives it five stars for the content, but the technical matter was actually on their end. So always check that it's on your end, guys. Chances are we haven't uploaded a podcast that, for example, skips around or suddenly jumps to another podcast. Vast majority of the time that will be you. We couldn't really do that if we tried to. So very occasionally we'll leave in a mistake on our end. Very rarely, you know, but uh, it's nearly always you guys. So one other person says, Wunderbar, a welcome counterbalance to the insanity of the culture wars. Toby's experience and wisdom alongside Nick's wit and candor is a perfect blend. That's nice. Did I read that one already? I don't know. Anyway, loads of good stuff. I definitely read the next one already, which is about the lefty academic that hated us. So thank you so much for your reviews. And if you want to support me, go to buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. You can also leave a comment there and I reply to them all. Not always immediately, but I do reply. Buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. You can go to nickdixon.substack.com for my Substack, And you can also definitely go to the Current Thing podcast and listen for free to all my brilliant episodes there. We just had another excellent one on masculinity by an author of some very interesting books on, on masculinity. Loads of interesting episodes. Honestly, it's underappreciated. It is appreciated. We've got decent downloads, but we haven't got quite weekly skeptic levels yet, but it really should be. So go to the Current Thing and listen to that. Toby, anything to plug? Yeah, well, um, please do go and sign the October Declaration if you want to show your solidarity with British Jews, condemn anti-Semitism here and in the Middle East, and to urge the BBC to call out Hamas for what they are. And if you want to do that, go to britishfriendsofisrael.org and just fill in the form there. And I want to give a plug for one more thing, Nick, which is um, the Restore Trust, which is like a group within the National Trust, which is trying to do a reverse woke takeover. So the National Trust, as you may know, has been completely taken over by the woke. And this is a group within the National Trust, which is trying to address that. And they've got a fantastic slate of candidates in an upcoming National Trust election. If By any chance, you're listening to this and you're a member of the National Trust, go to restoretrust.org.uk and you'll see who the people are on their slate standing for election in this National Trust board election. And one of them is the great Jonathan Sumption, the legendary 
lockdown skeptic and champion of liberty. He's one of the people standing on behalf of the Restore Trust in the National Trust Trust election. And that's the restoretrust.org.uk to find out who to vote for if you're a member of the National Trust. Okay, brilliant. And I think that is everything there. It's another epic episode and some will complain, but guys, you don't have to listen to it all in one sitting. You can break it up. There was just so much news this week. What else are we supposed to do? Some weeks, that's just how it is. So long episode. Most people like the long episodes and anyone who doesn't, frankly, it's a luxury problem, isn't it really? So I think that's it. Unless there's anything else to add, I think we'll go and we'll see you next week. But until then, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.